so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? What's going on in the world today? Come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio. Your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern sense is common sense. likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com. Or call 888-441. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, 
and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. All right, and welcome to another episode here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star, Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Streaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show. Oh, at least we forget out of WCET or WTEC Radio. All right, that's it. I give up. Today's Friday. I'm going to mess up anyway. Ah, I am your hostess, which is the local hostess. Annie, the radio chick, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, who forever forgets to unmute himself. So I'm not the only one screwed up today. (laughs) Oh, man, Curtis, what a way to start the show. I have no idea what I'm doing. Did I lose my co-host? Curtis. Curtis, can you hear me? Uh, Anyone else out there able to hear me? I see my microphone is going. Uh, Anyone hear me out there? Okay. Uh, Someone tell me if they do hear me. Okay. How come I don't hear my co-host? Hello. Okay. Something is wrong here. And I do not hear Curtis speaking at all. Um. Okay, I'm going to ask Doug, can you hear me out there? If so, can you put into the chat room? Otherwise, uh, Curtis, if they can hear you, I cannot hear you. Okay. All right, Curtis, looks like Curtis has to log out and log back in. Anyway, let's try this one more time. Welcome to another weird adventure here on Southern Sense. Oh, you're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, WCET Radio out of Columbia, South Carolina, and, oh, good Lord, half a dozen other places. So I want to thank the guys that are telling me that you can hear me in the chat room. Thank you so much. It's nice to know that I'm not that messed up today. Anyway, let's try again with Curtis and see if we have him. I'm muting you, Curtis, and let's see if we got you. Okay, Curtis, try once more. Can you hear me? And I do not hear Curtis. If you are tr- talking, Curtis. Do you, do you hear me now? Now we got you. What you got, got to unmute yourself at your end? No, it was that little button again on, on my headset. <laughs> Somehow it got knocked into mute. But I remember okay. this time after a little bit, <laughs> you know, but I tell you, oh. it's Friday. Oh. Oh, that it is. But I'm I'm hearing an echo. Do you have your speakers up on something like that? Because I hear my own voice back in my own ears a few seconds later. What about now? Uh, is no, it clearer? That's, good. That's, that's, a lot, that's a lot clearer. That's a lot better. Listen, Curtis, we got ourselves a packed-up show. Um, if you remember a couple of years ago, I think it was about three years ago, there was that uh, terrorist attack on the Paris subway it was known as the 1517 oh, yeah. Paris. Well, one of the National Guardsmen that was the American hero in that, Alec Scarlosis, um, is running for Congress out of Oregon. Uh, and his campaign is picking up a lot, a lot of news and attention. Uh, he is going to be joining us at the start of the show. 
And then we're going to have our Heritage Foundation segment with Zach Smith. He is a legal fellow at the Meese Center of the Heritage Foundation. And then our friend, your friend, our buddy, Uncle Ted, Congressman Ted Yoho out of Florida's District 3, will be joining us. Remember mm-hmm. the, the one that had the AOC incident that was blown out of proportion? Oh, yeah. And then, of course, another friend oh, of yeah. yours, Timothy Dave, who's a constitutional attorney, he'll be joining us. And then we're going to end the show with my friend, Daphne Barak. She's got a new project that she is doing, and it's almost complete. And she's going to come on and talk to us about that. Uh, so we got ourselves a jam-packed show. And, uh, oh, man, uh, just to let people know, if I sound a little discombobulated today, I am. Uh, my husband got out of the hospital finally after two weeks, um, just Good. late yesterday. Every four hours, every six hours, I have to give him an IV uh, medication, uh, and you know, waking up in the middle of the night to do that, waking up in the wee early hours of the morning. So I'm a little exhausted, and I've got dueling walkers in my living room. So if I'm not tripping over one of my five cats, uh, it is yeah. Don't forget the cats. (laughs) Oh geez. So. uh, I am a little bit exhausted, so if I sound a little crazy today, it's because I really am crazy. Oh, man. Uh, But you, Curtis, had an exciting day yesterday, I understand, didn't you? Well, I was supposed to. I decided not to go. Uh, It was a last-minute decision because I had so much to do. Um, I just got off of a two-week book tour, you know, where I was running all around the place the state of Florida. Tomorrow I'm going back down to South Florida and next week I'm going to um, Conway for some R&R, South Carolina. So I decided oh. just to get some things done around the house before I you know, get back on the road. So I missed the well, president. I did see it on um, on the internet, on YouTube later, but there'll be another time. He'll be back in Florida before the elections. I have no doubt. Well, if anyone was interested, Curtis had VIP tickets to the Trump rally yesterday in Jacksonville, Florida. And Yanni and I kept on scanning the crowd looking for you, Curtis. And Yanni thought he had spied you. And I said, no, not sitting behind the president uh, this time. He's sitting in front of him. So we kept on looking in the crowd for you, but uh, sorry you missed it. But as um, you said, he's going to be coming through Florida again. But if you head up to Conway, Make sure you stop by us because Yanni has something he wants to give you. And he's been like, okay. well, we got to pack up and mail it. And I said, no, Curtis is going to come through here. So you and Carolyn, you know, stop by. Make sure you're on the way up or the way back. Okay? It'll be on the way. We could do it on the way up or back. It doesn't matter. We'll get to you. And if, if anyone is looking for us up on YouTube, uh, we are up there. Uh, and... It used to be that when I posted the video, um, I could turn around and send out an invite to people, but they're no longer allowing me to do that. Uh, this is crazy. You used to be able to say, send out a watch party invite, and YouTube redid their pages, and I hate it. I hate it with a passion. <clears throat> because we're coming into the election, not YouTube, um, Facebook, 
I'm sure YouTube is doing the same thing because we got the upcoming election um, less than a month and a half from now. They're doing stuff to prevent us from getting our word out the way we used to. So they have it. They took yep. off the class. They're trying to format. us. They got this new format, which is really hard to navigate. Um, when you do do a live broadcast, you see people that follow your page, that there's a watch party going on. Come on, join in and, and pop over to our page. They took that down. And you know what? My my attorney general here in South Carolina, my friend, Alan Wilson, uh, is one of the attorney generals that is going after social networks for silencing the conservative voice. So thank you, Alan Wilson, and I definitely have to give you a call and get you back on the show. Thank you for standing up for free speech. We've got to go. You know, he put it most simply. You know, our nation was founded on the ideal, the premise, going out into the center of town, known as the town center or the town hall, really speaking, whatever your opinion is, whether I agree with it or not, you had the right to say whatever you felt, except for, you know, yelling fire in a theater. You know, there is, you know, logical, you know, uh, common sense things you can and cannot do. But if, if you were a pro-monarch, you had the the freedom to go to the town square and voice your opinion. If you were pro-republic, you had the same liberty, the same freedom, the same right. So what makes you think that simply because you call yourself a social network, that when I go out into your town square, which you, you advertise yourself as, a bastion of free speech, and suddenly I say something that your founders do not agree with that suddenly you have the right my speech. Now, if you advertise yourself as a liberal-only network, that's one thing. But you advertise yourself as something that anyone can say whatever they want. So right now, we have liberals out there on Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook, advocating for the execution of conservatives very simply for writing a book or expressing their conservative opinion, not promoting violence, not for promoting the destruction of property or persons, but just simply going out there and saying, well, I think a man is a man and a woman is a woman and you can't change them. That's free speech, folks. So if, if Facebook turns around and says, no, that's hate speech, is that truly constitutional? Is that legal? And they're challenging that. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Censorship. That's what it is. It is. It is pure and simple censorship. And finally, finally, there are members of Congress, there are attorney generals across this nation saying, all right, it's got to stop. And we should have the right as individuals or as a class to sue these networks for taking our money for promoting something that is not, in truth, free speech. I mean, I I lost on Facebook because they said, well, there's certain keywords in your ad, so we're going to restrict the audience. I'm telling you, thousands of dollars. I stopped using Facebook ads simply because it was not reaching the audience. They promoted it as being able to reach. They would tell you, oh, yeah. we're going to hit 
five million people if you put this ad out the way you have it written. Okay. And I find out it reaches 300 people. There's a big difference between 300 people and 6.5 million. You took my advertising dollars promising me this yeah. way and you deliver. So if they do do a lot I have just made jump on board. <laughs> yeah, I think going forward, well, this is the the right time to file lawsuits thanks to um, Trump, you know, putting like I think over 300 judges in positions throughout the country. So that's a good thing because we'll be able to block some of the stuff that used to get passed by the left all the time because of their activist judges. And I yep. hope he gets at least two more Supreme Court, um, you know, seats to fill. This would be the time for some of the older conservatives to retire so he can replace them with younger conservatives and extend our, you know, influence Mm-mm. decade. Some of the liberals. No, no, we want some of the liberals to retire so we can replace them with conservatives. Get it right. Well, <laughs> anyway. No, no. Anyway. No, we I, I, I don't watch like Clarence Thomas. Dedication, Curtis. Let's, let's get to the dedication, then we'll go back to this because we can talk about this uh, with Zach Smith and with Timothy Davis um, about this. So let's move along. And anyone that listens to the show knows that we started off with a dedication to a fallen hero. And uh, today's dedication is uh, going to go out to Nevada Patrol Sergeant Ben Jenkins whose end of watch was on March 27th of this year. And this is from, okay, where the heck did I get this from? So I apologize. Uh, The Las Vegas Review. Okay. I just want to make sure I give credit to the proper agency that uh, wrote the, uh, this piece. And it reads, Nevada Highway Patrol Sergeant Benjamin Michael Jenkins' life was cut short at just 47. He was defined as a serious devotion to public service. By the time of his death in March, when he was shot and killed in the line of duty by someone he believed was a stranded motorist, he had already earned the titles military veteran, firefighter, EMT, and law enforcement officer. What else could he have accomplished if he had 50 more years? His family and friends wondered during a three-hour memorial service at Elko High School, from which Jenkins graduated in 1991. Elko's native celebration of life had been delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Described by the Nevada Department of Public Safety as a hero send-off, the service began at 9.30 a.m., with roughly a half-hour procession from the funeral home to the high school. What happened to Ben was not fair or just, Highway Patrol Colonel Daniel Solwell said at the start of the service. Sergeant Jenkins was stolen from us, and it is a tragedy of the deepest and most painful kind. Why him? Just before dawn on March 27th, a cold Friday morning, Jenkins was shot multiple times after stopping on a remote stretch of U.S. Highway 93 to check on a driver pulled over north of Eli. Jenkins raided in that he had been shot 
and died before backup arrived. It marked the Highway Patrol's first death in the line of duty in more than a decade. He was survived by his mother, wife, Jody, children Jessica, Michael, Ashley, and Cody, grandchildren Payson, Quintus, Alexander, Aiden, Devin, Aspen, and his brother Thomas. Bravery is a quality of heroes as is a sense of duty, compassion, caring, and caring for your fellow man, George Tagliati, director of the Department of Public Safety, said during the service. Ben didn't hesitate to extend his hand that morning in March without regard for his own personal safety. Jacob was born on December 22, 1972, in San Diego to Thomas and Jancy Jenkins, but was raised in Elko. Growing up, Jenkins could oftentimes be found riding his bike around his hometown fishing for bass at the Ruby Lake Wildlife Refuge, or playing baseball. He loved the outdoors and in his free time went fishing, hiking, camping, and boating. After his high school graduation, Jenkins joined the military, building a foundation for what would become a lifelong career as a public servant. He honorably served in both the Army National Guard and the Air National Guard, reaching the rank of Sergeant First Class in the Army Guard. Jenkins then went on to work as a training officer for the Nevada State Fire Marshal Division, a crew supervisor for the Nevada Division of Forestry, and an assistant fire chief for the Spring Creek Volunteer Fire Department. In all, he'd spent more than a decade working as a firefighter, battling wildfires, and even volunteering at Burning Man for 15 years. For Jenkins, His work during the annual cultural festival was an opportunity to meet and connect with people from different backgrounds. In 2009, Jenkins finally found his calling as a law enforcement officer, said his youngest son, Cody, when he was studying to become a fire investigator for the Department of Public Safety and was instead hired by the Highway Patrol Division as a trooper in Jackpot. Jenkins was promoted to sergeant in Elko in 2017, and had hoped to retire by around 2023 to spend more time with his grandchildren. Characterized on Wednesday by Cody as the apples of his eye. Through his work with the Highway Patrol, Jenkins became passionate about reducing impaired driving and fatal crashes. In 2011, he was honored with the Department of Public Safety's highest honor, the Gold Medal of Valor, for his actions when he and other officers came under fire during a domestic-related shooting in Wells. In that shooting, an Elko County Sheriff's deputy was critically wounded, and while still under fire, Jenkins and one other law enforcement officer pulled the wounded deputy to safety. Known across the board for his compassion and caring nature, he will be remembered in the law enforcement community as a driven man, seriously, If he pulled over his mother, he would give her a ticket, said Charlie Myers, his uncle. But at home with his family, Myers said, he was very lighthearted. Anytime Tim McGraw's song, My Little Girl, came on, he would take the hand of his youngest daughter, Ashley, and sing to her. Go on, take this old world, he would sing off-key. But to me, you know you'll always be my little girl. During the service, 
the highway patrol announced it had officially retired Jenkins patrol number H4196. Speaking into a portable radio, Jenkins supervisor, Captain James Simpson, requested a 1042 for Jenkins, a code that signals the end of duty for an officer. There was silence. And then, momentarily halting all radio traffic for the highway patrol, a dispatcher said, Attention all troopers. Attention all troopers. Sergeant Benjamin Jenkins, badge number Henry 4196, a true public servant. May he rest in peace. Her voice breaking, the dispatcher continued. Henry 4196, final or two at 123300 hours. A helicopter appeared overhead in Jenkins' honor cutting through the fierce blue sky above Elko, the community he loved and served for more than 21 years. Today's show is dedicated to Sergeant Ben Jenkins. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It is also dedicated to the brave men and women that served this nation from its great birth through today and into its marvelous future. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon. My name is America. May God bless in everyone.
right, and we are back here. We are listening live to Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, iHeart, WCET Radio out of Columbia, South Carolina. All the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the southern-sense.com and find out where we are and when we are. Of course, I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, along with my crazy co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, <laughs> we've got in on the line, and as I said, people remember him from the uh, Paris subway in- incident, the 15, uh, oh good Lord, my mind just went blank, but anyway, let me uh, unmute him so he can <laughs> straighten me out, welcome aboard, Alec, and I'm going to mispronounce your name, Scarlatus, did I say it correctly? That was, uh, yeah, pretty good, Scarlatus. <laughs> No, was it the fifteen seventeen? I was starting to say fifteen twelve. It is the fifteen seventeen, but it was a train, not a subway. But between the name and everything else, it gets confusing. So no sweat. <laughs> well, you know, you have served our nation in the National Guard, uh, but you have decided that you're going to go one step further and continue to serve by running for Oregon's fourth district. You're trying to turn around and take Oregon from blue back into red, aren't you? Well, maybe not the uh, entire state, at least not yet, Um, at least my congressional district. Fortunately, Portland is not in our district, so uh, it's actually, it leans a little bit more Republican than I would say people typically realize, especially out here in Oregon. We have a bad reputation due to Portland, but where I am in the southwestern portion of the state, it's very conservative and very rural. Well, you know, I've always been saying, and my co-host will say that for the last couple of months, I'm saying it, November 3rd is going to be a ballot box revolution. Uh, people don't realize how upset the rest of the nation is when we see what's going on in Seattle and Portland and New York and Detroit and Chicago and D.C. And you can go on and on of these liberal-led states and cities that have just let mayhem run as if that is the new norm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially here in Oregon, I mean, we don't have to look very far to see these riots and things like that. There even have been a little bit in my district in Eugene, Oregon. And people see that the Democrats are okay with the violent aspects of the riots. And while at the same time, they want to defend the police and take away people's guns. And if they do that, then who's responsible for your own security and safety? And I think it's really, frankly, just scaring a lot of people into voting for our Republicans this year. And um, I mean, I, I really hope that the Democrats lose big enough simply so that they get off of their little radical tangent that they've been on lately and maybe actually elect some more moderate Democrats for a change and sort their own party out. Well, we have a question in the chat room, like who actually has the seat right now that you're running against? A gentleman by the name of Peter DeFazio, he's the chairman of transportation and infrastructure, and he actually co-sponsored the Green New Deal with AOC, and he votes with AOC 96% of the time and Nancy Pelosi 94% of the time. So he's uh, incredibly liberal and very far left, even though this district is very much considered a toss-up, and it was actually the closest congressional district in the country that did not go for Donald Trump in 2016. He only lost it by 550 votes. And 150 votes can mean a heck of a lot. When you think about um, 
I had a laugh. Uh, we've been talking about uh, possibility of voter fraud with these mail-in ballots, and there was an incident where nine ballots just seemed to disappear. Seven of the nine happened to have been uh, votes for Trump. Uh, but we don't hear, this is not massive voter fraud. So the mainstream media is not talking about massive. They're saying this is an isolated incident. Uh, but lo and behold, the post office had a bunch of ballots that also seemed to have gone off the wrong direction. Fortunately, they made it back to the post office and are going to be delivered. But no, no, this isn't massive voter fraud. You know, we don't have to worry about our vote, do we, Alex? <laughs> well, look, Oregon has been doing mail-in voting for about 30 years now, and we still can't get it right. Just in the primary, there was a bunch of people that had their voter registration changed to non-affiliated, so they couldn't vote for Republican or Democrat in the primary like they were registered. And if we've been doing this for 30 years and still can't get it perfect, I mean, Oregon only has 4 million people, and I really would not be very optimistic about larger states, say California, trying to do mail-in voting the very first time. Um, I think if we're going to try to go that way, we need to ease into it and make sure that it's safe and secure before we basically go whole hog and let everybody vote by mail uh, in an unproven system. Well, you know, um, a friend of mine, she's been working on helping clean up the voter rolls here where I live in South Carolina, and she's been quite successful in, in identifying dead voters, uh, which is a huge problem. Um, but what I'm going to be posting on my website, Southern Sense, as well as my Tea Party website, is a link to a site that's called Stop Voter Fraud, where no matter what state you're in, you can key in your name um, and your date of birth in the county that you live in and find out if you're registered. This is mainly for people that have moved within the last 10 years to see if you're still registered in your, at your old residence and then key it in to see if you're registered at your new residence. And I think this is the problem because we're hearing that in one state, anyone who asked for their ballot to be mailed to them are getting two ballots sent to the house. I heard another individual say that, you know, they got the ballots for the three daughters that nine, none of them have lived in the house of more than 20 years. And he received ballots for all three daughters. So we're, we're hearing there are problems all over the place. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, it's just, it's such a difficult system to be able to do safely and securely. And again, that's why I just think that they need to kind of ease their way into it if they do want to go that way, because it's not the most secure system in the world. I mean, if you don't have someone showing up in person with an ID that you can confirm, it's, you're just asking for trouble, frankly. Now, I, I looked over your website, and I like it very much, and you've gotten yourself some great endorsements, uh, one of them with the, the Combat Veterans for Congress. And I have a dear friend of mine, his son, is looking to run in 2024, and I'm going to be sending him over to that website to talk to them to get him on board with that. Uh, but what we are finding out that a lot of veterans and military people don't get their vote, their votes counted. Well, a lot of them also don't vote simply because they have more important things going on, being, you know, in Afghanistan or on whatever deployment they're on. So it is difficult for people in the military to vote 
And um, a lot of times their ballots do not make it back in time, just simply due to wherever they're stationed. Um, so it's, it, but that's a little bit different because that's more of an absentee system, which actually is a little bit more effective than just wholesale uh, mail-in voting like we do out here in Oregon. But it's, uh, I mean, like I said, it's, just, it's a very difficult system to do well and have done properly like our elections should be done. And when you talk about something as important as an election, I mean, this is something that we should really make sure our systems work flawlessly before we introduce them into the real world. You know, another thing that's been going around is this national popular vote, the call to abolish the Electoral College. Um, But if we were to do that, we would hand the reins of the nation over to um, three different states, and they would then control the rest of it, the other 47. Does that sound logical to you? (laughs) Absolutely not. I mean, that's why our founding fathers put in the Electoral College, and that's why we're a republic, not a democracy. I mean, if we go to the straight uh, popular vote, I mean, like you said, that would disenfranchise pretty much the entire middle portion of the country in a lot of states with not very much population, and it would really consolidate power to the cities. Yeah, now, um, looking at some of your other endorsements, the right to life, uh, I have to get a real kick out of this because when the... We, I went to the inauguration, and I was about three blocks behind the Capitol. So when these women had their march the next day, we were stuck right smack in the middle of it. And I see these signs, and these women are marching with little kids in tow, going, my life, my body. And one of the persons marching with these women happened to have been a pastor, collar and all. And, of course, my co-host knows I don't keep my mouth shut. And, of course, I, I confronted the pastor, and I said, You've got to be kidding me. A man of God, a man that's supposed to, you know, relish life and work to preserve it. And didn't Christ say, I knew you in the womb? That means that's a, that is a person. That is a child of God there. Girlfriend's yanking me away. going, you're going to get us into a fight. But you know, it, we don't realize that this child, this preborn child, does not have a voice. Did not ask to be conceived did not ask you to take its life away. It has no choice. So what makes us think that we have the right to decide for that innocent life? Well, especially when you talk about things as disgusting as, you know, very late-term abortion or partial partial birth abortion, um, things like that especially. I mean, I don't understand why everyone can't get behind things like that. I mean, if a child is mature enough to survive outside of the womb. I can't understand even how people that are pro-choice are in favor of killing that unborn baby. Well, you know, there's, there's this global movement to depopulate, to reduce the human population globally. Uh, and I think that is one of the reasons why they are promoting abortion so much. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, I mean, perhaps, but uh, I just think that it's regardless of why anyone is doing it. I mean, I just don't think that it's a, it's good for our society or good for the people involved. I mean, we really need to actually start pushing the needle in the other direction 
morally overall in this country because it just seems like lately we've been going down the wrong track, not just with abortion, just as a society. Well, you know, you just said something that is a mouthful uh, because someone had just messaged me on Facebook Live. Um, They were going to have a prayer rally because Reverend uh, Billy Graham is having a huge, massive rally in D.C. tomorrow. And there are other ones all across the nation. And he just messaged that theirs was canceled because Black Lives Matter is going to do a counter rally to them. You know, there is a push in society to silence our moral fiber and our religious devotion. In Congress, would you do something to help protect religious liberty? Well, absolutely. And I think with the coronavirus, especially here on the West Coast, we see that, you know, protests are, are allowed but churches have to remain closed and you can't even attend a funeral or a wedding because of the coronavirus precautions. But as long as you bring a Molotov cocktail, you can do whatever you want and people aren't going to do anything about it. So the double standard to me is what's really shocking. If you're going to enforce some kind of draconian law, you better do it to both sides fairly. Well, you know, with this virus, with these riots, a lot of businesses, because of the virus, were closed you know, understandably up to a point. But once they started to open up, now we see the rise of the Black Lives Matter and these massive riots and Antifa. And one of the endorsements you got is from small business. People don't realize the largest employer in the United States are small businesses. More people are employed by a small business than by any major company. And and you are here being endorsed by them what would you then look to see to do to help small businesses prosper in today's environment well again talking about kind of the double standard between churches and the riots there's also a double standard between large and small business i mean someone say you own a furniture store and you're a small business owner you have to close now due to the coronavirus or at least go to very limited um facilities and people you're allowed inside your business Whereas, or like Walmart that also sells furniture is allowed to go full bore because they are an essential business because they also sell groceries. So you're punishing the small business owner that only sells furniture, but yet Walmart is allowed to carry on business as normal because they also sell groceries. And again, it just seems disproportionate and unfair to people that own small businesses in this country. Well, you used a, a analogy that's similar to one I did at my, one of my, my recent meetings, and my co-host will tell you, I've said this numerous times on the air. If you can go to Wally World to shop, and you're within three feet of the cashier who is handling whatever you're purchasing without gloves, just a, maybe a, a mask on their face and maybe a plastic shield between you and the cash register, if you feel safe doing that, then why don't you feel safe going to your polling place to vote in person where even stricter methods are used, where you're handed a pen that's been sanitized to sign in. Uh, You go to a machine that is sanitized before you use it and after you use it. There's safe distancing. You're not three feet within someone. You're kept six feet or more. So why do you feel unsafe going to vote in person, yet you can walk into Wally World or have your hair and nails done? Well, uh, I I agree with that completely, but um, 
again out in Oregon we do almost exclusively mail-in votes so uh doesn't really affect us out here but uh I uh, definitely don't envy your problems this year Alec yes yeah this is the co-host um you had quite an experience that most Americans will never have and that's coming face to face with terrorists am I right Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was. And what was that like? What was that like? And what was it like working with Clint Eastwood? (laughs) Well, two great questions. Um, First of all, uh, the the terrorist attack definitely came out of nowhere. We didn't realize, you know, we didn't know anything like that was going to happen. I just turned around after hearing what sounded like a gunshot and there was a shirtless man with an AK-47. So it was definitely a shock, um, a total adrenaline rush. And um, long story short, my best friend tackled the guy and shook him out while I hit him over the head with his uh, rifle. And uh, it was, I mean, it was definitely scary, but surviving something like that is definitely one of the best feelings in the world, especially when you know how lucky we got with the, multiple weapons malfunctioning and uh, just all the things that went into uh, us being in that time and place. Um, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it definitely felt like we were being pushed into that uh, situation by events even previously in our lives. And then uh, working with Clint Eastwood was an incredible experience. I mean, he's cooler than you would probably even imagine. And uh, it was great for us since we looked up to him so much and entrusted him with really our life story um, that he really didn't disappoint in any way. I mean, the movie is incredibly accurate and uh, I'm like, he's just an incredible person and it's nice that a celebrity that you look up to for so long doesn't disappoint you in any way once you actually meet them and spend a lot of time around them. Well, I, I was just curious, Curtis, the way you phrased the question with the terrorist at one part of it and then the next sentence you slide in Clint Eastwood, I was wondering if you were calling Clint Eastwood a terrorist. <laughs> Make really my funny. day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I want to go off a little bit here because we've got the wildfires going on on the uh, West Coast and it used to be that we had forest management. There was good forest husbandry. Uh, but the, with the rise of this massive environmentalism, uh, the Green New Deal, uh, we're not doing that anymore. Even the Native Americans did it before we even landed on the continent, you know, good forest husbandry. Would you then strive in Congress to bring that back to reduce these wildfires? Absolutely. I mean, especially here on the West Coast, this has been something that's been going on for probably about 30 years now. Um, We really did away with responsible forest management starting in about 1991. And so it's something that I'm incredibly passionate about. It's one of the core issues as to why I decided to run for Congress in the first place. It's a federal issue because it's federal forest lands. And specifically in Western Oregon, there's a very specific set of laws called the ONC laws that govern the federal lands. And the real problem is, is not only do we rely on it for our economy as a whole here and all the tertiary industries that support the timber industry, but also county governments in the southwestern part of the state are really reliant on ONC funds that come from 
basically a portion of the money that's received from these federal lands being logged goes directly to the county to fund county services. So when you take away logging, not only do you take away the main source of income for an entire group of people, but you also cut off funding to county governments as well. So we've had an incredibly tough time here in the southwestern part of the state, and that's one thing that's really underscored by having really the worst fire season in probably almost 100 years. Typically, a 10,000-acre fire is considered very large, and it's something that happens maybe once or twice every decade. And just this year, I mean, just there was a fire just down the road from my house that was 173,000 acres, and that was just at the last uh, count. And there's been two fires that are even larger than that going on in Oregon as well at the same time. It's over a million acres burned total, which is really hard to even wrap your mind around. But absolutely, that's going to be one of my biggest priorities as elected. Well, you know, I, you look at the size of these fires and the numbers of them. Uh, I can't believe that these are all natural occurring. Are, are you hearing news about the actual causes of some of these fires? Well, some of them are definitely arson, but regardless of if they're arson or not, it's what really allows them to become the large fires that they turn into is really our lack of management. I mean, even if someone does start an arson fire in a managed forest, it shouldn't be able to grow out of control. And that's really the problem is, I mean, whether they're lightning strikes or arson or what have you, I mean, these fires, nothing that starts from a match or from a lightning strike should be able to grow to over a hundred thousand acres. I mean, we should get on top of it earlier and manage our force in a way to where these fires don't burn as hot and don't burn out of control. And there isn't that huge fuel load in the forest to feed these fires. Now, well, Chief in the uh, chat room just wrote that his nephew had lost his house in the Medford area to one of the fires. Yeah, this, there's real serious consequences to these things. You know, and, and you talk about the loss of just the property, but the loss to the economy, to the loss of businesses, to people now uh, homeless uh, without any uh, recourse to them. There's a huge hit to not just the state, but the national economy, too. Well, and of course, I mean, everybody really in the entire country gets most of their lumber from, you know, Oregon and Washington and the trees here. So we're really destroying our natural resources. And not to mention, like I said before, the amount of money that typically comes into the economy with proper forest management and actually going out and logging and harvesting trees versus when you don't manage it, not only is it not bringing in money, but then you're having to pay millions and billions of dollars to put out these forest fires. So you really, I mean, it's a, it's a very uh, thin road to walk, I guess, because on one side you go, you, you have these massive forest fires, but on the other side, you don't want to log every tree in the forest. But I mean, we're woefully underperforming the, the potential of our natural resources. We're doing about a fifth, of the rate of sustainability, we could literally log about five times more trees in Western Oregon on federal lands before we even reach what's sustainable. So we could be doing a lot more and we should be doing a lot more. And we're, of course, seeing the consequences with 
not only loss of property, but loss of life and loss of millions of dollars spent fighting these forests and not going into the economy. Well, it, it, it begs to differ if some of these things are manufactured deliberately to control the price of lumber. Uh, it's, it's something I had questioned. I understand closing down the, the mills and stuff because of the virus temporarily, uh, but when it still remains closed, added in with these forest fires and also now a $13 uh, panel of plywood is shooting above $30 a panel. Uh, Even if you could find it. Um, I have a friend of mine wanted to put up some fencing around his property and he can't even get the fencing. So I'm wondering if it's another way of attacking our economy. I mean, I I don't necessarily believe that, at least maybe not intentionally, but there are a lot of unintended consequences. And the problem really is that if a mill closes because they're so large and so expensive, they're not going to open back up. And we have a lot of mills that are closing because they can't bring in enough trees to run the mill. And unfortunately, as a result, the ones that are still staying open are having to import trees from Washington or even Canada just so that they have enough trees to actually keep running the mill. And if we destroy our domestic timber production, it's only going to make that problem worse and make prices go up even higher because then they're going to have to be not only milled outside of the United States, but but then imported as well. And that's just going to add to the costs exponentially. Now, President Trump has been reducing the amount of federal uh, parks, uh, setting sending a lot of it back to the states. Would you be something endorsing that so now the state can control the land and it's used better than the federal government? Um, not necessarily um, for a few reasons. Uh, in Oregon, the state controlling the land would probably be even worse than the federal government controlling the land. Um, this, These specific set of laws were set up to benefit the counties that the land is in. So I would like to see the land brought even down to the county level. So if a more liberal county does not intend or does not want to harvest the timber, then fine, they can deal with it however they'd like to deal with it. But counties that are more reliant on it or need to harvest timber to survive, then they should be allowed to do that. And again, the laws were set up to benefit the counties and bring in money to county government since they didn't have enough private land for property taxes, um, and so I think that's the level it should be brought down to. Now, talking about parks, um, there is a program that some states have, and the federal government also endorses it, uh, where it marries uh, National Guard and National Army troops, uh, as well as veterans, to different parks for different various works, whether it's painting, planting, building, restoring, uh, which is an excellent way in which someone that has served and wants to continue to serve after ha- having been on active duty. Would you like to see something like that expanded to help with these lands? Um, absolutely, but these lands are not parklands is the problem. These are meant to be working forests. I mean, these are meant to be basically tree farms. I mean, this isn't supposed to be something that's untouched and then just managed This is something that's supposed to be working and producing lumber. I mean, the 
the companies that harvest the trees should be the ones managing it, and the federal government should allow them to do that on federal land as well. If you leave a forest untouched and then have people come in and manage the forest without harvesting timber off of it, you're then running a deficit. And these uh, forests, with the intent of the law, was never intended to do that. They were meant to be producers of a renewable resource, which is timber. Now, if people want to know more about you, Alec, where can they find out and where can they help with your campaign? Sure. Well, my website is alecfororegon.com. That's A-L-E-K-F-O-R, Oregon.com. And uh, we also have a Facebook page and things like that. And you can just reach out, shoot us an email or a Facebook message if you'd like to uh, donate or volunteer. But we'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. All right. And just last question before you uh, head on out the door, because I'm sure you've got other appointments and other interviews to do. What is the one most important thing you want to accomplish when you do reach Congress? Um, honestly, for me, it's probably forest management. I mean, that's why I got into politics to begin with. I mean, like I said, it affects an entire way of life down here. We've become the poorest congressional district in Oregon. And after having a 33-year incumbent Democrat, I mean, he really can't pass the buck to anybody else. But at the same time, I'm also, due to what I survived in the middle of a gun-free continent, incredibly proud of Second Amendment. And I believe that everybody should have the... Uh, right to protect themselves and their families. So probably those are going to be my top two issues. Well, God bless you, Alec, and I wish you a lot of luck. And I'm telling you, you will be the next congressman there. Well, thank you so much. We're pretty excited about the race, and uh, we look forward to November. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yes. (laughs) All right. Check out his website. AlecforOregon.com, and we're waiting for uh, Zach to call in. And Curtis, I think I'm going to text you his phone number in case he doesn't. Um, Normally, the guys from Heritage call in on time, but I'm going to just text this over to you right now. Uh, Bear with me, guys. Anne is not organized today, which is unusual. Uh, But just in case, I just sent it over to you. Let me make sure I sent the right one. Yes, I did. Okay, I got it right. Oh, yay. I got it. Oh, anyway. Okay. Now, um, Jim Evans, who's listening in or watching in over on Facebook, had pointed out that the church that he belongs to uh, uh, is going at the Capitol tomorrow for the Billy Graham um, uh, rally, bringing people back to faith. And, you know, this this is the whole thing. You know, if, if you have faith, whether you're a Christian, Jew, uh, Hindu, I don't know, whatever. Uh, if you seem to talk about your faith, you're bad. But if you talk about one of these Antifa movements, you're good, you're woke. Uh, it, it, there is a movement to silence us, and I'm glad to see that people are starting to dig their heels in and say, no, we're taking our voice back. We're going to proudly demonstrate our faith publicly. Um we had the, um, oh, good Lord, I, I'm forgetting the name of the kid uh, that was at the, um, oh, good Lord, I'm having one of these major brain farts. The kid that just won that multi-million dollar lawsuit because he was standing there smiling while this Native American beat a drum in his face, uh, and he was told he was the one that was the bigot. Oh, whatever. He won his lawsuit, you know, and we're seeing now the Supreme Court also upholding freedom of religion. 
And I'd love to see our laws upheld defending the freedom of religion. So, guys, you know, if you have one of these rallies going on tomorrow in support of what's going on in D.C., I suggest get out and, and participate, proudly participate. A Sandman, thank you, Chief. Yes, the Sandman. That, that kid's set for life, and that's not the last lawsuit he's got. He's got a couple more pending, too. And he won the first one. I see it's going to be like ducks in a row. Finally, finally, we're having someone to represent our voice. And there should be a whole big movement back to faith. And, you know, if you don't believe, fine. But don't stifle someone else's ability to, you know, observe their faith, to demonstrate their faith. You know, like I said, you know, the town square, that's where everyone was able to go out and give their opinion. And this is what our nation was founded upon, those town squares. So whether it's Facebook, YouTube, the Grand, Snapchat, whatever, don't let them stifle your voice. Fight back. And, you know, if you have an attorney general like I have one, Alan uh, Wilson, Joe Wilson's son, a friend of mine, who's willing to take it the next step and defend the people of his state in their ability to freely express their speech and faith. So let's let's support these people. You know, let's get behind them. Let's support them. And uh, one of the things we're going to probably talk about a little bit later on uh, is sports. <laughs> how sports has now become very political. And I should have asked um, Alec about that because there's a lot of sports out there, like the NBA, the NFL, who get funds. They get, they get our our tax dollars. They do. They, they get funding from our government and yet become a political arm of the left. And uh, hold on. Why don't we take those federal funds back from sports? I mean, they're getting money from the fans, from tickets, from advertising. What do they need our tax dollars for? Anyway, let's bring our guest in on the line. He is, which they got teeth in straight, with the Heritage Foundation, Zach Smith. Good afternoon, Zach, and welcome aboard the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you know, there was a great article in Impromise, in Primus. Promise <laughs> in Primus, okay. the Hillsdale College uh, uh, little flyer they send out. Jason Whitlock wrote, and you know, as he was talking about you know sports and how they're all now behind this Black Lives Matter movement, which we find to be a Marxist, blatantly Marxist movement. I'm questioning. I was questioning. Well, don't these national sports like the NFL, the NBA, and various other major league sports receive federal funding? If they become a political arm of the left, isn't that in violation of federal law? Well, it's hard to say, Annie. I think uh, more uh, more importantly, uh, if we take a step back and look at the larger picture, you know, communities are struggling right now to deal with a lot of the conflict and strife caused by these movements. And it's important for local leaders, local politicians uh, to really – use any funding they receive, federal funding, federal grants, uh, to adequately equip equip their local police officers, local officials, uh, to be able to to push back, maintain law and order, and really, you know, secure the safety of their their 
citizens uh, that they're responsible for. And so whenever you see, um, you know, professional athletes, others kind of uh, taking pot shots at police officers, uh, that's always uh, disappointing to see. And that very is. And having been on the receiving end of it, I can tell you it's no fun. It is absolutely no fun at all. Um, just to change the subject a little bit for the reason why we had brought you on, um, we've got this battle going for the Supreme Court. And every day right. it is like a ring circus. I mean, they're coming up with some of the craziest ideas, um, term limiting the Supremes, uh, changing the numbers of them. Uh, the latest one that I heard jockeying around this morning is uh, allowing a sitting, sitting president to be able to appoint no more than two justices per term. And if we think about that, uh, if I recall, under Jimmy Carter, he appointed zero. Uh, so what does that do to the next one down the line when you've got maybe four or five openings? Uh, some of these things are well, just really whack. Well, it is, and it's really disappointing in a lot of ways because what we're seeing is really an escalation of the partisan tensions in Washington, D.C., and really the, the unfortunate and inappropriate politi- politicization of our courts. And so what's happening in some ways is essentially that uh, some folks in Washington aren't liking the judicial philosophy of the nominees that President Trump has put forward, and so they're proposing to change the, the rules of the game. You know, in addition to the to – the, steps that you've mentioned that are floating around. You know, there's also been talks about potentially eliminating uh, the legislative filibuster in future uh, Congresses uh, for the Senate uh, and potentially even trying to add D.C. or Puerto Rico as states uh, so that uh, additional Democratic senators will be able to be seated and, you know, further change the rules. And so I think it's an inappropriate, a troubling escalation. And really all that's happening here is that President Trump uh, and Mitch McConnell are fulfilling their respective uh, duties. The president has a duty to put forward a nominee to the Supreme Court, and just like the president has a duty to put forward a nominee, the Senate has a duty to give their advice and consent. And they can either give their consent, and the nominee will be confirmed and appointed to the court, or they can withhold their consent, and the president will have to send over a new nominee. So the process that's taking place right now, there's nothing uh, unseemly about it. There's nothing inappropriate about it. It's exactly how our constitutional system is supposed to work. Now, will they be able to uh, confirm a Supreme before the election? And how would they well, do that? Yeah. Well, it's certainly encouraging to see that, you know, Mitch McConnell deserves a lot of credit for prioritizing uh, getting judges at all levels of the federal judiciary confirmed. Uh, But we've seen Mitch McConnell's come out. He has promised that the president's nominee will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. And then uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, has promised that once the president names his nominee – Uh, He's going to quickly bring the nominee uh, in front of his committee for hearings and will hopefully have the committee's work done uh, quickly uh, so that a vote by the full Senate uh, can take place as soon as possible. Well, Lindsey Graham happens to be my senator. Uh, I've I've gone nose to nose and toe to toe with Lindsey, and I'm only five foot three. So if you know the stature of Lindsey Graham, when I say I went (laughs) nose to nose, we were literally nose to nose. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> and I, 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 
He always amazes me the way when it's election year, he is ultra conservative. But once he's midterm, then he goes all the way back over to the other side of the aisle. So, you know, every once in a while, we well, got to slap him around and drag him back. Well, at least on this issue, this specific issue of getting the president's nominee through, you know, I think he's he's taking the absolute right tack on this and is really, uh, you know, he's going to take a lot of heat for quickly scheduling the, the president's nominee uh, for, for hearings in front of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, but I think it's the appropriate step. It's the right step and will set up uh, the president's nominee to be confirmed, uh, hopefully, by the full Senate as quickly as possible. You know, one of the things they were talking about is packing the court, and FDR was famous for attempting to do that. And I, I'm glad to see that uh, the media turned around and said, well, didn't this happen once before? Someone was paying attention to history. But the number <laughs> of Supremes has not always sat at number nine, has it? It hasn't sat at nine justices. It's fluctuated slightly, you know, slightly more, you know, a few more justices, a few fewer justices, but it's been fixed at nine justices for well over a hundred years at, at this point. And so, you know, what's really troubling about this prospect, and one of the reasons I think FDR's proposal for court packing failed, is because once you begin the process of arbitrarily expanding the Supreme Court for political reasons, uh, really, where does it end? You know, each time that the control of the White House and Senate switches parties, are we really going to add additional justices? And so the problems with these types of reforms, uh, and they're not really reforms, they're, they're political maneuvers being proposed right now, is that once you go down this path, it's hard to, to get off of it and to stop it uh, with any real uh, limiting principles. And so, I, again, I hope that everyone takes a deep breath takes a step back, and if there are structural reforms that need to be made, you know, we can certainly discuss it at a time when cooler heads will prevail. Oh, <laughs> cooler heads in Congress? Really? <laughs> it, 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 it's a pipe dream in a lot of ways, uh, but certainly right now uh, things are even more heated, even more contentious uh, than they ordinarily are, uh, which, again, is, is unfortunate and I anticipate whoever the president's nominee is, uh, they're going to face uh, a very bruising uh, confirmation battle. Well, there's someone in the chat room that made a uh, observation, you know, a la uh, Bork, uh, Kavanaugh, and we can go on and on, uh, that once the nominee is brought forward, there will always be these victims, Clarence Thomas. Uh, but I think he, he's going to make a smart move if he does nominate a female because then it's going to be a little bit harder to find these sexual uh, victims, wouldn't it? I think he's he just doing an end run around them. Well, I think, you know, there are different lines of tack that I think Democratic senators will take. And, you know, the two leading nominees that we've heard discussed so far, are Judge uh, Amy Coney Barrett on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and Judge Barbara Lagoa, who currently sits on the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And so Judge Barrett, uh, she faced a very difficult uh, confirmation. Uh, she had a very difficult confirmation hearing for her current position. And really, the questioning by the senators was inappropriate, I thought, in a lot of ways, uh, because they essentially attacked her for her deeply held religious beliefs. Uh, you know, Senator Dianne Feinstein even went so far as to say, the dogma lives loudly within you, and, and she said she found that troubling. 
And so if the nominee is Judge Barrett, I anticipate we would see uh, more of an, a line of attack attacking her Catholic faith, her religious beliefs, and trying to paint her as some type of religious fanatic, uh, when in fact uh, her scholarship as a law professor, her rulings as a judge have shown just the opposite, that while she is a person of deep faith, uh, she issues uh, legally sound, constitutionally appropriate uh, decisions. Well, didn't they say the same thing about John F. Kennedy? I seem to remember, because I was raised Catholic at the time he was running for the president. Oh, he's going to be beholden to the Pope. But this was the right saying this, not the left. Now it's coming from the left when it's a right-leaning uh, candidate. Well, and I, I think a lot of this is going to turn on, you know, uh, frankly, if Judge Barrett is the nominee, there'll probably be a fight over uh, Roe v. Wade and abortion. Uh, because many on the left are worried uh, that Roe v. Wade uh, could potentially be overturned. And so Judge Barrett, as a law professor, did a lot of scholarship on you know, setting aside the moral problems with abortion and with Roe v. Wade on the legal underpinnings of Roe v. Wade and pointed out some of the problems legally with the decision. But you know, pointing out the legal problems with Roe v. Wade really isn't a radical position because even uh, you know Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who just passed away, uh, herself said that in a lot of ways Roe was a, a legally problematic decision, and I don't think anyone would uh, categorize Justice Ginsburg as as necessarily a pro-life justice. And so, what Justice or what Judge Barrett has researched uh, what she said uh, about Roe v. Wade really is not outside of the religion or outside of the legal mainstream. And unfortunately, senators are just trying to take that and paint her again as some type of uh, religious fanatic. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting hearing, and I'm looking forward to it. I thought I heard a start date of the hearings uh, October 12th. Is that correct? I'm not sure if that exact date is, but again, you know, President Trump has said that he will uh, announce his nominee uh, tomorrow, Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern. And I anticipate once that formal announcement, that formal nomination is made, uh, things will begin to move very, very quickly. Absolutely. Now, uh, Nancy Pelosi notoriously was heard saying they've got quivers, you know, arrows in the quiver. Uh, one of the things bandied around is another impeachment hearing. Now, I understand how this would uh, upset the apple cart here, but you know, explain to the listeners why a threat or impeachment charges against Trump could actually derail the nomination's uh, vote. Well, in fact, it's not just President Trump. If you listen to people like AOC, uh, she's also pushing to impeach Attorney General Bill Barr. And it said, you know, they could potentially impeach uh, hundreds of high-ranking uh, executive branch officials in an attempt to stymie the Senate from being able to consider uh, the president's Supreme Court nominee. And the thinking behind that is once the House impeaches somebody, essentially it charges that person, uh, whether it's the president or another high-ranking official uh, with a high crime or misdemeanor, uh, that person goes before the Senate where the Senate conducts a trial. And so, you know, if you think about it in legal terms, it's almost like the House is charging them with a crime, and then the Senate is conducting the trial. And so the thinking is, if uh, the president's impeached, if other officials are impeached, uh, the Senate would have to conduct a trial, which would uh, 
mean they wouldn't have the time to consider the nominee. And so fortunately, you know, Mitch McConnell, he's been around a long time, has proven himself to be a very effective uh, Senate majority leader. Uh, The Senate has a lot of leeway in determining their own schedule, in determining their own rules. And so I think using uh, Senate procedures, Senate procedural mechanisms, uh, the majority would have uh, the ability to to push back against that, any attempts to kind of stymie their ability to consider the president's nominee. So in other words, even if they do pass articles of impeachment, the Senate does not have to drop whatever it's doing at that moment and proceed with the trial. Right. And keep in mind, you know, it's it's troubling that, you know, Nancy Pelosi, AOC, anyone really would be talking about impeaching someone uh, essentially for political purposes. That's not uh, the purpose of impeachment. Uh, The purpose of impeachment is if you have a high ranking government official who you believe has committed and I quote a high crime or misdemeanor. That's the term in the Constitution. Uh, then that is when the House should impeach someone. And so, uh, again, it's, it's troubling. It's a further escalation. And, you know, we hear a lot on the left about erosion of norms. Uh, this would be a, a very big erosion of, uh, of a norm surrounding impeachment if Nancy Pelosi or others in the House uh, were to continue down this path. Now, it's funny because Ted Cruz blocked a resolution just recently uh, that was going to honor uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's supposed dying wish that uh, no nominee be made until after the election. Uh, but he did a re- something very smart by blocking that. I mean, have we ever seen a dying wish become the actual law of the land? Well, it, it would be unusual. You know, a lot surrounding uh, Justice Ginsburg's passing and this nomination will be uh, unusual in some ways, um, you know, especially with the heightened partisan rancor in uh, Washington, D.C. right now. The good thing about that resolution, you know, it would be a, a non-binding uh, resolution, really wouldn't have any effect other than just to, you know, say what the sentiment of Congress was. Uh, but but again, you know, I think the president, uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate, they're they're doing their constitutional duties by uh, the president by pledging to put forward a nominee, and the Senate by saying they will give their advice and consent uh, on that nominee. Now I want to change the tack just a little bit because the election is less than a month and a half away. Uh, was it forty days? I think less. Um, uh, about yeah. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of uh, shenanigans uh, being pulled, and one of them, Michael Bloomberg. And when I heard this, I just I just started screaming at the TV. Uh, he is now going down to Florida because uh, it was 2018 they passed a law that if you are someone that was a convicted felon, you don't have the right to vote. However, if you've paid your dues, you've done your time, the full sentence, uh, you then went and paid restitution to the victim and to the state. You paid all of your debt that we can restore your right to vote. So Bloomberg, or as I call him, the blooming idiot, uh, said that, oh, wait a minute. I've got all this money lying around, and I can raise even more, so I'll pay whatever fines are out there, and you can register to vote. And, of course, knowing how they're going to vote is what he's doing. He's influencing. He's buying votes. And LeBron James just joined him, and a bunch of other celebrities are are joining him in this little uh, gimmick. Isn't that vote tampering? Isn't that illegal? 
Well, this has been an ongoing case. You know, uh, a lot of the the form the felons uh, who are you know were trying to take advantage of this law, but hadn't paid their restitution, hadn't paid their court fees and fines, uh, brought a lawsuit. And so it's been working its way through the federal court system for for a while now. Uh, the trial judge uh, in Tallahassee, Florida, originally said that Florida's law requiring all felons to to pay their fines, fees, you know, et cetera, before they could vote, uh, violated several provisions of the Constitution. Now, fortunately, when that when Florida appealed that decision to the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, the Eleventh Circuit said, "No, no, no, that's not right. Uh, this does not violate the Constitution." And there were uh, Judge Bill Pryor wrote the majority in a, in a very good opinion, and one of President Trump's uh, nominees, uh, Judge Barbara, uh, potential nominees, Judge Barbara Lagoa. Uh, wrote a very good concurrence explaining why uh, this did not violate the Constitution. And so this is just the, the latest um, tactic uh, being used uh, to, you know, th- th- it's the latest development in an ongoing saga. Um, without knowing more of the specifics about it, it, it I can say it is troubling uh, in some ways. And I do know that uh, the state of Florida, uh, uh, st- uh, Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody, is certainly calling for an investigation uh, into this latest development. Yeah, uh, to me, it would seem that that would be, you know, very, very obvious that what they're doing is buying votes. But we'll see how it plays out. Because uh, Bloomberg also had another thing he did recently that's being challenged in court by a little-known uh, independent candidate, Sean uh, McCutcheon. Um, uh-huh. with campaign financing, uh, where Bloomberg took out of his pack his failed campaign. He had $18 million left in his war chest. He says, well, I tried to run. 100 days later, I checked it out, but I got this $18 million lying around. I'll give it to the Democratic Party. Uh, isn't that in violation of campaign finance reform? Because that's far in excess of what is allowed. Well, I think this is part of a broader conversation going on right now. You know, we've heard a lot of talk about uh, election integrity, about, uh, you know, mail-in voting uh, specifically. And so I think it's really important that all aspects of our electoral process are being looked at, uh, that the integrity of our elections are being secured. And, you know, we hear a lot about voter fraud today as well, and and many people on the left especially say it's kind of a myth that it's just kind of a, you know, a straw man that that those of us on the right have made up. Well, I would encourage you and your listeners, go to Heritage.org. There's an election fraud database uh, where Heritage is – it just has a sampling of proven instances of election fraud, uh, which is where the the charges have been proved, typically where someone has been prosecuted – and there's over a thousand instances uh, that that are documented, and so again, you know, I encourage you, your listeners, go look at it. You can look and see who these individuals are, where the fraud was taking place. And my colleague at, at Heritage, Hans von Spakovsky, has written extensively on this issue and has really done uh, a lot of great work helping to ensure uh, that our election uh, process uh, does retain its integrity. Yeah, we've had Hans on here. A couple of times, and we've been discussing this specifically. But what he's got there is, as he says, it's just a sampling. It is not a listing of every single case that was brought forward. It's just a sample. So this could be just the tip of the iceberg. And in the news today, 
There were two more instances where it was possible voter tampering. Nine ballots just disappeared. Seven out of the nine happened with the Republican ballots. Um, and there's another one where the mail in ballots just kind of like went awry. They just disappeared and suddenly they reappeared. And uh, we've been hearing stories in the 2016 election how ballots just seem to get washed over the naval vessel deck into the sea and never arrived to the military personnel. You know, just story after story after story that we do know this is going to be the most pivotal election in our lifetime. Well, and I think it's so important. That's why it's so important for all of us to pay attention, be on the lookout for any instances of voter fraud, of voting irregularities. And this idea that this is just a made-up problem, well, as the database shows, as, as Hans has talked about, as I've talked about, as others uh, at Heritage and other organizations have talked about, it's not a made-up problem. And especially in close races, uh, any close race, but especially at races, even at the local state levels, where vote races can be decided by very small margins, uh, it, it's very, very important that we have confidence uh, that the votes were only eligible voters are casting votes and that the votes are correctly received and tabulated. You know, it, it's funny because in the last election cycle where Joe Birkin Cunningham uh, knocked out, um, uh, na- uh, not Nancy Mace. Uh, oh, good Lord. Nancy Mace is running now. I'm trying to think of who. Oh, uh, Katie Arrington. Um, I was getting calls from people in my tea party saying, Hey, we're up in Charleston, and guess what? Joe Cunningham is standing outside of the polling place, approaching people in line and handing out snacks. That, that's a huge no. But yet no one prosecuted him. No one turned around and turned him in. And this is why we need poll watchers. Well, that's right. And I think, you know, if you want to talk about another important distinction between in-person voting and voting by mail – you know, when there is in-person voting, it's much easier to see what's going on. If there's a problem, to address it on the spot and fix it. Uh, with mail-in voting, if there's a problem, if questions come up, it's much more difficult to address it. And in fact, uh, absentee ballots historically have had a much higher rejection rate uh, than votes cast in person. And so the more vote-by-mail uh, that process, you know, gains traction. The more people that vote by mail, uh, the more likely it is more voters will actually be disenfranchised uh, because their votes won't count because of some mistake or irregularity on their ballot. Whereas if that person had voted, you know, in person at a polling place, uh, that problem could very easily have been remedied on the spot and their vote would have counted. And so again, it's election integrity is a big issue. And it's something we especially need to be very vigilant about as we approach the upcoming elections in November. Yeah, well, I have a friend of mine who works with my Tea Party group here, and she has an organization that's been going through our county voter rolls. She's already identified more than 1,000 dead people still registered to vote. But what I found very interesting, we just had an opening of a county GOP um, location Matter of fact, Lindsey Graham was supposed to be talking uh, at it, but unfortunately, uh, Ginsburg passed away and he had to reschedule everything. Um, but they asked the crowd by a raise of hands how many people are transplants, not native South Carolinians. You know, and 
vast majority in the crowd had raised their hand. And it raised the question, well, how many of you are still registered to vote in your old state? And no one could answer that. So she came up with a website, which I'm going to put up on the show page later, as well as my Tea Party page, uh, a program where people can go to whatever state, go down the list, click on your state, key in your name, your date of birth, and your county, and find out if you're still registered to vote. And they're finding that within a 10-year period of moving, many people are still registered to vote in their old state. Now, if these mail-in ballots are going to your old address, who's getting them, who's filling them in, and who's mailing them in? Right, right. That's absolutely right. And that's what we've seen in places that have had uh, large-scale mail-in ballots go out is that you know people are receiving uh, – either ballots for someone who's been deceased for quite a long time for, you know, the, the person who lived at their home, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And it also, you know, election officials have also had a lot of trouble timely tabulating the ballots. And so, you know, earlier this summer, there was an election in New York that largely took place uh, by uh, mail-in balloting and the election officials in New York uh, were very slow in tabulating the results and really caused a, a lot of delays in the process and, and the, you know, the citizens' ability to find out who won uh, the election. And so it's, you know, it, it's very troubling and, and, again, something we really have to remain uh, vigilant against as the election approaches. Well, Zach, it has been a pleasure having you on. People can find your, your stuff up on heritage.org and follow you and find out you know, what's the latest with Zach. Yes, please do. And I'm also uh, – I'm now on Twitter, uh, at TZ Smith, and I post a lot of my articles, other research that Heritage is doing there. And so, uh, you know, if you and your listeners would be so kind as to follow me there as well, I'd certainly appreciate it. Well, God bless, Zach, and you enjoy your weekend. Thank you. You too. Take care. All right. Check out Zach and we've got our buddy to the show. Love having him on. I'm trying to find out what he does when he retires in a couple of months. Welcome back, Florida Congressman Ted Yoho. Good afternoon. I'm, I've been calling you Uncle hey. Ted. You, do you <laughs> no, you can call me whatever you want. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> it, and I appreciate you and Curtis putting the show on. Oh, it's our pleasure. I, I guarantee you're going to end up starting your own podcast. I, I, I feel it in my heart. <laughs> Hey, we'll see. hey, Curtis, how you doing, man? Um, right. I enjoyed your last guest, too. The Heritage uh, Organization does an awesome job, um, uh, and they're just a strong conservative think tank up on Capitol Hill that, you know, uh, keep our policies going in the right direction. So I appreciate them. Well, you know, with the quality guests we get on here, we just had um, Alex, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Scarlatis, who's running for Congress out of Oregon. Uh, we've been having home run after home run. You know how we do our show. Only the very best. Yeah, you did great. <laughs> Only the best. Well, that's good. Well, you certainly well, you got know, plenty to talk about. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there was an article up on Hillsdale College there in Promise Magazine by Jason Whitlock. And as I was reading it, you know, he was railing against the rise of this leftist politics in sports and sports used to be somewhere where it didn't matter who you were i read that article yeah yeah it was an excellent this was a place where americans can just go and cheer for the good guy you know white hat versus black hat mattered but now it's become this huge political animal 
so as I was reading the article, the back of my mind goes, wait a minute. I remember looking at the congressional budget at one point in time, and I saw funding and grants that went to major sports, baseball, basketball, football, not just, you know, pro sports, but also, you know, college sports. Uh, my question would be to you, isn't that in violation if they take a political stand while taking our tax dollars? I don't know if I'd have to look at statute, but it's certainly something they shouldn't be doing. And, Annie, as you pointed out, when you get into sports, movie, music, um, the arts, people go to those things to kind of get away from reality and the stress of their life. And the athletes and the musicians and all those, they need to keep that in mind and do their trade. And if they want to run for politics and have an opinion, um, let let them run. You know, one of my favorites is Dolly Parton. And somebody asked her an opinion about something in politics or a politician. She goes, I've been around long enough to know I am an entertainer. I'm smart enough to know that is my job, and that's I'm going to stick to that. And you decide on your own what you, you know, who you like and who you don't like. And I think that's wise, um, um, uh, just a wise advice from somebody that's been around the block several times. And, um, you know, these athletes should do the same. I don't want to hear their political views when I watch a football game. In fact, I've stopped watching all major sports. Well, actually, the one I still remain watching is NASCAR, and even that is, is taking on a bent. Fortunately, not as blatantly as the other major sports, but I stopped. I used to be a Green Bay Packer fan. Bigger, a kid from New York, <laughs> a Green Bay Packer fan. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it yeah. took away the love of the game when they started kneeling. Matter of fact, bumper sticker on my car says, I stand for the flag. And I love getting well, in front of the liberal with <laughs> But, you know, it, it, it well, is something you. that, you know, it, it's being thrown in our face. I mean, it's one thing if I'm a political, or com- I, I don't know what you would call me, a podcaster. <laughs> I'm not a news there person. But I have my opinion, and you tune in because you want to hear Maybe you may right. agree or disagree. Want to hear what I have to say? Well, that's different than if I'm on stage acting or singing, or if I'm playing a sport. No, you want to see the play. You want to hear the music. You want to watch the sports. You want to see two people beat the crap out of each other over a, a stupid ball. Fine, that's what you're there for. <laughs> Was it Laura Ingram? I, I think Laura Ingram wrote the book "Shut Up and Sing." And that should be the mm-hmm. whole point. It should be, and uh, hopefully these people will understand that, um, and they can get involved with their political contributions, which many of them do. Um, But we've got so many major problems in this nation that we're facing that, uh, you know, I would hope these people in positions of influence would rally the nation around these instead of dividing the nation. Absolutely. Yeah, Curtis. Yeah, they – they say we're polarized, that we have never been this divided a nation. You have to go way back to the Civil War to find this uh-huh. kind of division. But I believe it's divided because people, back in the day, we trusted the major ABC or Alphabet you know, news channels. But the, right. today you have more news outlets, so we are more informed. And, and at least on our side, we have seen how we have been bamboozled over the years. And that's why we're taking such a strong stance because we now understand what the left is all about. 
What are your thoughts on that? No, I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, when you have 24-7 bombardment uh, from all these, uh, what do I call them, media outlets, um, because, Andy, you're talking about being informed by media, but a lot of times we're misinformed by media. And, um, you know, when you have that kind of stuff going out constantly, people just get immune to a lot of it or they get a slanted side of it. And if that's their political view, that's who they stick with. We just had a, a great speaker at the Conservative Opportunity Society, uh, Joseph Locante, and he was talking about this and um, um, how the news media will just, with big tech now, they just market to you and they look at your likes and they're tracking all that stuff. And so they send you stories accordingly. And, um, you know, they do it for profit. They don't care how the, what the results turn out as long as they're making money. And I, I think this is something we just really need to look at in the American people. In fact, when people ask me, what do I watch? I said, I want you, if you do like I do, I think you'll be all right. I watch about five minutes of one of those shows, whether it's Fox or CNN, and I'll listen to that. Because after that, it's pretty much just a repeat of the same stories. And then do your own research and then turn the TV off. And uh, I think you'll be a lot happier. I know I am. Well, it's funny because my husband got out of the hospital just late yesterday afternoon, almost last night. And he'd been in there for two weeks. And um, I hope he's okay. he did, well, he's, he's got a, a bit of a road to come back. Um, so it's going to be a bit of a stretch. But, you know, he what he did was... He plugged his cell phone in, he turned on YouTube, and watched old movies or old TV yeah. shows. No commercials, no slant or whatever. So last night I was doing my research for the show, and I turned on Newsmax. I'm Unless it's someone like Tucker Carlson or Mark Levin, I'm not turning on Fox News anymore. Uh, but yeah. I turned on Newsmax just to find what is actually going on out there. And I do my stuff. <laughs> He looks up at me and he goes, he had that puppy dog look on his face. He's like, can we turn something else on? I don't want to watch the news. People are getting burned out. But the problem is they really if, you are. Turn on, if you turn on like even a regular TV show, uh, a current TV show, even they are so steeped in one form of politics or another, one sort of agenda. And then you have the commercials in between. And my mom, who's 88, God bless her soul, she goes, there's too many commercials. you got three minutes of the show, and the rest is all commercials. But this is what we're yeah. getting. It, it's big business. It's big it business. is, and I don't, I, I don't watch network TV, and if they have commercials, I just don't watch those channels. I value my time too much to be, instead of sitting there watching them market something I don't want to me. And so, you know, I just turn it off, and uh, we watch movies, mainly my wife and I, and then we'll get the news we want and turn it off. But you know, this really goes back to our educational system. Um, my wife pulled up an article, it's in Pennsylvania, where it's in the textbooks or teacher's curriculum, and it said that if your parents support the police department or policemen, they're racist. This is the kind of garbage that our public school systems are teaching, and this goes back to the, uh, the, the responsibility of the parents going, being active in the PTAs, being active in uh, the books that they pick for the next uh, school year and demand that they teach, you know, the things that they want taught. And if not, they can get them out. President Trump signed that executive order that all schools have to teach American civics 
in American history the way it's supposed to be taught. And I'm so proud of him for doing that. I mean, that's, that was a bold move because if we wait until the educational department does it, it won't ever happen. It takes somebody like a President Trump that has executive uh, uh, background that says, no, we're doing this, and he does it. The problem is it's an executive order, and it can be reeled back from the, uh, the next administration uh, after he leaves office in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the 1776 Commission, it's to counter uh, the 1619 project, which I'm glad to see that happen. But what my state had done a number of years ago, uh, I think they started this like 10 years ago or more, uh, they started a high school level that you must teach the founding documents and principles. This was in New York? No, this is South Carolina. (laughs) Okay, good. I was going to say, it didn't. Didn't sound like New York, yeah. but well, that's great, uh, and, and they should. Yeah, and then they extended it up into higher education, to the colleges and universities, that they must be taught. You know, you think about how many people that go to law school and never read or learn about the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, um, uh, English common law, uh, uh, um, Oh, good Lord, I just went right out my window, which followed English common law. Oh, geez. I, I have the doc, a copy of the document. The Magna Carta. <laughs> the Magna Carta. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, you read my, <laughs> my That's exactly it. You know, all these documents that led up to our Revolutionary War. And, you know, they are taught here in South Carolina. And I'd like to see that permanently done throughout the rest of the nation. You know, I had uh, the privilege of being able to address the um, War College in Jacksonville. And there are officers in there, you know, captains and things, and they're young. And uh, we got talking about, you know, the the constitutional republic that we have here versus socialism. You know, what scared me, Annie and Curtis, is some of these young officers who are going to be leaders in our nation says, well, I don't see that much wrong with socialism. And I'm just thinking, are you kidding me? You people that are going to lead this nation, you better understand very succinctly the difference between these two because the utopia that the AOCs and the Elams uh, or Elam Omar, those people, the squad, the liberal progressives that are really um, at the, at the, to be nice, call them Marxists, um, what they're promoting, that utopia of free school, free health care, free this, I mean, AOC is saying that if you can, everybody should have a living wage, whether you work or not. Give me a break. That utopia they're painting in reality is Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro's today. And that didn't happen until about 2006, 2010. And people don't think that can happen here. It can happen in the next election if we're not vigilant. And uh, it's up to us, the American people, uh, to be informed and make sure that we stick true to our basic principles. You know, we are a constitutional republic. Absolutely. And every time I hear democracy, democracy, I, I, I scream, I yell, I rant, I rave. It's not a democracy. Democratically elected republic. Uh, they got to get right. it right. They don't understand the, the difference between democracy and republic. One on the rule <laughs> of law, one on mob rule. Very simple. Well, if, you, we want to, if you want to see a, a democracy or a democratic process, Look in those cities like Oregon, Portland. Uh, look at those. 
that is mob rule. And as Ben Franklin said, um, democracy are two sheep and a, or you know, two wolves and a sheep deciding what to have for di- uh, lunch. The sheep always loses <laughs> because it's mob rule. Yeah. Yeah. Congressman. Yes, sir. We're getting a lot of hubbub about um, Trump and his response to whether he will transfer, you know, peacefully um, if he doesn't win. I think if I were Trump, I would have told them, look, you know, you were the guys who didn't accept me as president, you know. You guys should be asking the Democrats, you know, because to this day, to this very day, they have not accepted him as their president. Oh, that is so true. I would have yeah, left it at I that. Mean, you are absolutely right. Uh, you know, talking to him and knowing him, uh, he, he's going to do what's right. If it's a resounding defeat and the courts have cleared everything, he'll step down. There's no doubt in my mind. But if if it's the shenanigans that we're seeing, I think in Pennsylvania, again, uh, there were nine ballots that were found in the trash, seven of them. We're, uh, they're all military, all from overseas military. They're in the trash. They're all, all nine of them. Um, seven of them they opened up were for Trump. And so mm-hmm. if that is accurate, if that is true, we need to be make, making sure that our electoral process is, you know, done legally and properly. And we don't want any of these shenanigans in there. And until that is decided emphatically through the court's, um, you know, I don't think he would step down, and I wouldn't want him to. But if I, I do feel that if he did lose, and uh, which I don't see ever happening, um, um, you know, he, he'll do the right thing. So, well, I, I'd love to see what the current version of the hanging chat is going to be this time around. <laughs> there will be some version of it. Hopefully, it's not yeah. in Florida, and then Minnesota. You saw what Minnesota's doing, right? They can receive ballots up to eight days after the election with no postmark. Oh, geez. Uh, yeah. No, the, the and that's, that's just like, right there. yeah. And so if um, Mr. Trump seems to be way behind, I can see uh, 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 all of a sudden a lot of ballots showing up in uh, Minnesota with no postmarks. And this is something that should worry Every American, whether you're Republican or Democrat, because if it happens in one party, it could happen in the next election in another party. So, in other words, there's no law on the book that said ballots must be entered and counted by a specific date. Yeah, no, there isn't. Supposedly, it's, uh, each state is an individual in that. Now, I thought there was in something in the federal uh, election law that there's what is known as a safe harbor, that all ballots must be certified, um, I believe it was 35 days after the official general election? Well, that part is, yeah, that part is. But as far as can they come in after the election with no postmark, they're free to decide how far they can come in, but they do have to meet that federal guideline or that deadline. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, you know, talking about uh, earlier with some of our guests about the upcoming um, SCOTUS nominee and Nancy Pelosi's threatening to 
torpedo it one way or another. And the ugly I word is being reared again, impeachment. Um, do you see an impeachment charge being tossed over to the Senate? Um, there's been talk of that, Anne, and we had a, we've had great conversations on this. I'm a member of the Freedom Caucus, and this came up in there, and Andy Biggs is the chairman. And uh, he has put forth um, a motion to vacate the chair with Nancy Pelosi. And we had a, a very strong discussion about why. And uh, we can go back to the beginning of this Congress. She sent everybody an American flag and said that she looked forward to working with everybody in a bipartisan manner. We've done anything but doing that. And then all the shenanigans with the impeachment, the Mueller investigation, Adam Schiff, all the lies, you know, the the multiple whistleblowers, and now we're seeing evidence of, of uh, the collusion, and there was, and it was through the Obama and the Clintons. And so she has lost control of the House. And what came up is if she moves forward with impeachment, the articles or the motion to vacate the chair will go to the floor. And this is what our conversation came up. And, uh, of course, right after that, she said uh, she wouldn't waste her time on him he's not worth it to try to get out of office but that will change when he wins again uh she's going to have a meltdown the squad is really the one that's controlling the democratic party i know that firsthand and um um, after this next election i I think you're going to see miss pelosi uh become another member of congress if the uh if the ill-informed people of san francisco uh, unfortunately, put her back in the office. She'll just be a member of Congress. Well, I, I don't think there's a conservative person living still in San Francisco. I think they've already fled, haven't they? I don't either. <laughs> well, I think the last one was the lady that had that uh, that hair salon, and they ran her out of town. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, isn't California also the one that Gavin Newsom just signed that law saying that they're going to outlaw? all gas-powered cars uh, by 2035. <laughs> God bless them in California. You know, you don't get the, the government you want. You get the one you deserve. And uh, I can't think of a better place to have somebody like Gavin Newsom be their governor. Um, you know, if that works for them, knock them out and knock yourself out. But, you know, I kind of like my, my big Ford truck and uh my boat uses fuel, and uh, I kind of like it that way. Well, you know, my husband nearly fainted a, a while back, passed one of these little compact electric cars. You know, you, you'd think two people in there, maybe. And uh, the person was getting out of the car, going into the grocery store, and I looked at the person, and I said, uh, where do you put the dog and the kids, much less a bag of groceries? <laughs> <laughs> my husband's yanking me away. <laughs> And that's the car that on the back it says smart car, <laughs> smart car, dumb driver. Park Congressman. My big yes, sir. giant red Ford Expedition. <laughs> I said, I can put that in the back of my car. Yeah, really. When, when you hear in the, the news reports that um, Joe Biden can draw anywhere from 20 people to 500 at, at best, <laughs> And then you see the crowds like you did last night for Trump. How in the world could he be leading in all the polls? That's, well, it's like well, I think they, just, they forgot about 2016. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, uh, they, I think they tried to 
do a psyops on us in the 2016 election where Trump didn't have a prayer. And of course, that's what they said about my election. He has no draw because he has no message. If you listen to the Democrat, and if you listen to their Democratic um, um, uh, convention, it was all doom and gloom. How bad everything, how bad the the economy is, how bad jobs are, and you know this income uh, disparity. And they're playing on the fears of people. The Republican convention and President Trump, every time I've been around him, has nothing but a positive message. Yes, he dings the Democrats, and yes, he dings Pelosi and Biden and all them. But then it's all about America. And he said something last night I've heard him say before, and I know this to be true. He goes, I don't need this job. He goes, but I love this country and the people in it. And I'm my job is to return power to you, we the people. And you don't hear that on the Democratic side. It's They want bigger programs so that people become more indentured to big government. And uh, I heard a friend of mine put it very succinctly. They said, the Democratic policies are designed to give you what you want to keep you where you're at. They're designed to give you what you want to keep you where you're at. So you're dependent on big government. Well, you know, we saw of government playing nanny state to us with this COVID virus, with those checks that are going out to the unemployed. Um, they're getting more money to stay home than they did when they were working. So now I'm hearing from friends of mine who have small businesses that they can't get people to come back to work because, you know, they're, they're getting a nice, cushy paycheck. So why should I work? But this is what socialism is. Again, the Democrat policies to, are to give you what you want to keep you where you're at. So you keep voting for Democrats. And that's the thing we hear all over, Annie, from our business owners. I can't get workers to come back, you know, because they're making so much. And so we need to wean them off in about a, about a four-week period. You know, whatever they're getting now, three or $600, it needs to be cut back about a quarter for the next four weeks and then open up the economy with caution. Now, Curtis, you're asking a question, so you should mouth off. Go ahead. Ask uh, uh, Ted the question. (laughs) Do you you think there's going to be another stimulus bill? Everybody keeps asking me that, that I know. Yes, there is. I don't know if I'm going to support it. They're talking about what I heard the numbers today were $2.4 trillion. And, I'm okay supporting the American workers and their families, but there's, our, there's so much money that hasn't been spent. And until we do another stimulus, I think we should have a, a real quick accounting of how much money is out there that hasn't been spent. And then I haven't heard anybody saying, all right, we're going to do this, but we're opening up the economy at the same time by doing this. And, and until you have a, a game plan to open up the economy, you're going to have to keep doing stimulus, and we don't have enough money to stay open or close down indefinitely. And so I think we need to talk about um, what is the accounting we have, how much money is readily available, and that will dictate if I need another stimulus. And then at the same time, work to open up this economy because that's the only way we're going to get out of this. You know, but to well, answer your question, was $2.4 trillion the last count I heard, and it's a bunch of wish lists uh, from the Democrats and Pelosi. Now, 
looking at you know, what's going on out there, we have these, quote, peaceful protests going on. You see massive gatherings. Um, whoops, sorry about that. Um, we have these massive gatherings going on out there, yet we're not allowed to practice our faith. Uh, we're not allowed to go into the church, or even if you do have an outdoor service, even if you're outdoors, it's vastly limited. Um, businesses are being restricted on how many people they can let in, and yet we've got this rioting, this looting, shouting and spitting in each other's face, physically attacking them. This is allowed to go on, but peaceful, good work cannot be done. We're having, and I want to yeah. also point out tomorrow. Graham is having a massive rally in D.C. to help promote faith. He is. He is uh, right there at the Mall of the Americas, and uh, uh, it's going to be a major undertaking. I know it will be a good one, uh, but I'm sure there will be protesters around that. Uh, you know, the hypocr- hypocrisy of the left versus the right, uh, we were at that rally last night. Governor DeSantis um, uh, in Florida, he's been very strong on this. And he says, if you're peaceful protesting, fine. If you cause violence, property damage, personal injury, you're getting the strictest um, uh, 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 violations against you. If you disrupt a business, if you burn a business, if you take down a statue, you're going to have the, the weight of the court throwing at you, and we're going to prosecute these as hard as we can. If you disrupt people at businesses, if you disrupt them eating their dinner, we're coming after you. And I think, I think that's what people want. That's that's law and order, and you can't have a civil society without it. Um, Trump and the Republican policies promote that. The Democrats, Schumer, and the and the Harris Biden ticket, as both Joe and um, Kamala says, the Harris Biden team, they're not going to promote that. They're going to bow to the whims of the radicals. Well, Ted, it has been a lot of fun having you on. Uh, people can find you on your website, which is your name, tedyoho.com. Couple more months. A uh, couple more months. Yeah, and then we'll be talking about what you do in retirement or whether or not you regret not running back to Congress one more time. Well, I, I, I'm happy I stuck to my term limits. There are mixed blessings because there are some things I wanted to get done, but I'm also confident that the next generation behind me if we get the right people in there, they'll do a good job. And, uh, you know, I'll keep an eye on politics. Um, I'm passionate about this country. I love this country. You know, my alignment in life is God, country, and family. It's pretty basic. And uh, this country has been so good to my wife and my family and I. We've lived the American dream, as many of us have. And, uh, you know, it's our, this generation's duty to preserve that for the next generation. Well, God bless you for the hard wow. work you do, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you do in the future, Ted. You have a thank you, ma'am. You all have a great one. You too. All right, Con- Curtis. We'll see you later. Say hi to we'll- Carolyn. All right, we'll be talking soon. Mighty fine. Take Con- care. All right, Congressman Yoho. And now we've got your other friend up here, uh, Timothy Dave, who is a constitutional uh, attorney. Well, I should say, constitutionally aligned attorney. Good afternoon, Timothy. Welcome <laughs> back to the show. Hello, good afternoon. Good to be back. It's uh, great to follow hey. a little bit of Yoho. Um, you know, he's been great for the state of Florida, but the, the one thing that impresses me, I mean, he's very impressive representative and always has been uh, when I was living down there, but um, he said term limits. 
and uh, he stick to his to his principles and uh, stick with his term limits. Um, and I think that's uh, one way that to commendable, get, yeah, <laughs> get our boat back on on track. Uh, but it's good to be back. I appreciate you having me back. Oh, it is our pleasure. I'll let you start off, uh, Curtis. Hey, I got a hypothetical for you. Um, yes, sir. It's not really a hypothetical, but um, Trump knows, you know, he, he's got at least another term, another four years, and in 2024, 20, he's gone. Yes. Now, with the Supreme Court, justices that we have in there that are conservatives now, and me and Andy, we, we were talking about this earlier before the show, wouldn't it be wise for some of the older conservatives to kind of like retire now so Trump can put in some younger conservatives that will extend? Because he doesn't know when the other Democrat justices will ever retire, and it could be under uh, a Democrat you know, president. So it would I don't know, to me, would behoove him, well, not him so much, but for other justices that's been there for 25, 30 years that are conservatives to retire so he can put more young bloods in there. What are your thoughts? Yes, yes, you you actually were right in my wheelhouse. I was thinking the same thing, and I was actually going to bring that up. But, yes, that is a that would be brilliant um, if that could be if that could be done. Well, it can be done. It's just a matter of uh, for the older conservatives like um, who've been solid, like uh, Thomas, particularly, I think of him particularly. He's been out there, been on the the court for a while, but it's the same. I mean, that had um, Ginsburg listened to Obama, because my understanding is that um, that was Democrat strategy. That um, when Obama was elected to his second term, that some of the upper level in the um, DNC went to Judge Ginsburg and say, hey, why don't you step down now? We can put someone else in to take your place as well as the, um, you know, the, uh, replace you, and then we'll deal with the Scalia replacement later. Um, and she said, no. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not um, – know denigrating her her death and you know like condolences to her family but that was an opportunity had she decided to step down then um we might be having a completely different conversation right now um but yes i i, I love that strategy and I, I, trump very savvy and i think his through and i would not be surprised if um he hasn't mentioned that or um, rumblings of that has have occurred um, within his administration. You know, I, I had commented when Curtis mentioned that to me. I said, "Well, no, no. Why don't we get the uh, the liberals to step down <laughs> and fill them with more conservatives? <laughs> we control the bench." <laughs> well, the, the the thing is, is that you know, again, and these are you know rumblings that have been out there, but you know, there are a lot of people out there that I I can't verify. I don't know. But some people seem to think that Ginsburg may, you know, have been incapacitated for an extended period of time, um, maybe even possibly even deceased. But uh, I'm, you know, I don't know. Uh, the, the fact is that you know she is, you know, officially deceased now, and you know, President Trump 
he has a constitutional duty to nominate someone. You know, I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine um, earlier this week, and we were discussing that, and his contention was that, uh, no, he, he can't do it, he being President Trump, he can't do it. And so I brought up Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, and it's very clear. Um, he, being the president, he shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provided two-thirds of the senators present concur, and he shall nominate and by and with the advice of the cons- advice and consent of the Senate, excuse me, ambassadors, other public ministers and councils, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for. That's Article 2, Section 2. So he has a constitutional duty to nominate, now, regardless of the, the circumstances. And it was brought up, well, what, what was the difference with uh, President Obama and the Merrick Garland um, proposed nomination? I said, and I heard Senator Ted Cruz give a great explanation of what the difference is. The difference in the Obama administration and Merrick Garland being appointed was that at the time, the, the Democrats controlled the presidency. They controlled the House, but they did not control the Senate. And that's key for Supreme Court nominations. It is the Senate, not the House. The difference this time is that the Republicans have the White House, the executive branch. They also have the Senate, which um, provides advice and consent on presidential nominations. So there is a difference. In other words, elections have consequences. (laughs) (laughs) You were discussing with uh, Congressman Yoho and some of our previous guests, you know, there was at one point they were discussing whether or not in the House to limit the number of justices a president can appoint per term and limit it to two. And then the question I raised was, well, what do you do with someone like Jimmy Carter who nominated zero justices? What happens to the, his that's, two picks? That's correct. <laughs> yeah, does it carry over? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good point. That's, a, that's an excellent point. Um, I, I, think that, I think the Constitution... And I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for the Constitution. I'm an originalist, and I just think it was the, the most God-inspired document ever produced by man. And it was God-inspired because it, the, the checks and balances, if they're followed the way they're supposed to be followed, it takes care of itself. It, the, the government will take care of itself. There, there are some things that could be tweaked, um, particularly term limits with regards to on the uh uh, the legislative side, but other than that, I think it's perfect. So the checks and balances will work if you have uh, people who will follow it to the to the T and not try to uh, undermine it, which um, has happened. And another thing with regard to these uh, uh, House of Representatives rules, these rules that they have within their separate branches of the, the House rules and the senatorial rules. Um, I don't know if they can be codified some way, but it seems like that whoever's in charge, whoever the the majority leader in either uh, side of the house, they can uh, change the rules at will. So I think there needs to be some um, something codified to make that more standard instead of 
kind of willy-nilly and arbitrary. Yes. You know, you're um, right, though. The um, the Constitution, if applied like it was um, written to, you know, to be followed, would be a better off country. But as you know, and I have observed over the, the decades, when the Democrats can't win, they always want to change and move the goalposts. They always yes. want to change the rules or move the goalposts, and that's the problem. That is a problem. And it, and even going back to when uh, uh, Roosevelt, uh, FDR, he proposed stacking the court. Uh, and even at that time, back to, that was in the, the 30s, uh, 30s and 40s, you know, that was such a radical uh, proposal that even members of his party were like, okay, we might be going a little too far. Let's, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, it, it seems That's like true. whenever the, the um Things don't go in their favor for some reason. They want to change the rules, as like you say, move the football. And that's not how the that's how not how the Constitution was designed. That's not the original intent of the Constitution. However, of the lack of education, lack of understanding on Constitution and how it's intended to work, you have these uh, theories out there that it's a living, breathing document and it can change with the times. Um, we can read into uh, things such as uh, marriage being a constitutional right and what type of marriage. I mean, and you've dragged all these things into it that really should be left to the states to decide. And they've, they've come under the Constitution, just planted. And some of the role has been has been but very much so. Well, you kind of broke up towards the end of that, uh, Timothy. Oh, I was saying that because of because a lot of times the original intent of the Constitution has not been followed many times, and you've brought in issues that not do not, not necessarily fall under the Constitution. For example, marriage. Why is the federal government even involved in marriage? Marriage should be left. Actually, why are the states, why are governments even involved in marriage? Marriage should be something that, if if you want to have some time. Um, again, your religious left- authority. Uh, uh, you're you're okay. saying the very same thing I've been saying for years, and um, I had this a conversation with the same sex couple, and I said, wait a minute. The moment the Supreme Court defined marriage. They defined religion. Every single state has what they call civil unions or domestic unions. They, they, they may call it any one of a number of things. You go to your local government office. You take out a license to recognize the two of you as a domestic couple legally. You yes. enter a contract. It becomes a contract. The moment you take that contract and walk into a house of worship and ask for the ceremony to be prepared, you go from a civil contract into now a religious union recognized by your denomination of whatever it is. So once you mandate what the word marriage is defined as, you now define religion, because marriage is a religious right. And once I explained it that way, everyone goes, oh, I never thought of it that way. I said, you know, if my church wants you... If my church doesn't believe in same-sex marriage, you can go down the street to the Unitarian Church, and they'll be happy to do that. 
and then you can still have what is called a marriage. But as to contractually wise, by uh, possessions, uh, custody issues, and so forth, that is handled by that little contract you got from your local government office. You know, walking into a church and having a priest say the rights without that contract does not make it a legal union. Yes, I, 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 I mean, I agree with you 100%, Annie. I look at this, or or actually defining marriage and then branching it out to all these types of um. This progressive Timothy, agenda. To... I'm sorry, Timothy. Okay, you keep on breaking you... up. Are you able to hear me, Annie? Yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah. Okay. I think this is all part of a progressive uh, movement to redefine many relationships, not just marriage, but many types of relationships, um, and then bring it in, bring it under color of law. For example. Uh, the recent decision by the legislators in California to modify their statutes and not make it criminal for someone. Let's, I'll just give an example. This, it's, I don't have the statute in front of me, but for example, if someone is 24 years old and they have sexual relations with a minor who is 14, because that minor is within 10 years of age of the adult, and if that minor gives consent, then there are no criminal penalties attached to that. There is no penalty um, if you're convicted. Uh, well, it's not a crime because you would be convicted, and therefore you don't end up being a registered sex offender. The legislature in California, and I believe the governor did sign it. Governor Newsom signed it. And many people who live there are outraged, but this is the legislature doing that. Why would why would anyone propose that, and why would the governor sign off on that? It's part of an agenda. I, I think that's pretty clear, and I, I think this has been a slow walk, starting with the same-sex marriage, leading up to where we are now. But it's it's all covered to try to normalize these unusual um, relationships. What what do you think about that? Um, I, I completely agree with you. They're redefining it, and it all comes down to um, making certain sexual deviations normal. Yes. Next thing you know, you yes. the, NAMP, the the men-boy union uh, being made legal. Uh, they're now having children that are going through uh, sex changes that haven't even reached puberty. They want that to be the new normal. You have a case in Texas of the twin boys. One being you yeah. know, raised as a girl, going through all the necessary things to change him from a boy to a girl. And this kid has not even entered puberty yet. At the age of six and seven, they don't understand sex yet. They've got a long way to go. Oh. And if the human brain oh, they, is not... Oh, they... oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was just I was say... Say, oh, they, they should not understand it, but a lot of times no. they're exposed to the... Uh, uh, sexualization. They're exposed to these things. Look at the uh, that movie, the Netflix movie that has caused so much outrage, Cuties. Yeah. And you also have these story hours with transgenders. And yes. blatantly, 
blatantly, you know, showing their sexual preferences to young children that don't understand. But this is the new norm. I mean, even reading Dear Abby the other day, I did one of these head slaps go WTF. If anyone oh, wants gosh. to know what WTF is, just ask them what the it stands for. <laughs> then you just got your answer. <laughs> and you know, she, she turns around, and this grandmother writes in and says, you know, my six-year-old granddaughter has a friend that is transgender. Um, should I explain this to my granddaughter? I, a six-year-old? A six-year-old. There's something wrong here if the human brain is not sexually fully developed until the age of 25 to 27. Anyone under the age of 21 should not be going, have to become a fully cognizant adult to actually understand. And and, and it's, it's a phase. Ask yourself why the vast majority of now these transgenders are girls. This never happened before. It was always yeah. boys. It was less than 1% of 1%. It was a rarity. But now you've got whole cliques. A circle of friends, all of a sudden they all decide all at once. No, I'm sorry. We see, saw this with anorexia. Uh, we saw this with uh, 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 underage sex becoming pregnant in, in junior high and high school. You saw this cycle. And I think it's another yeah. cycle. Sooner or later, our society is going to wake up and say, wait a minute, this is a mental disease. This is not. This is not a normal. And it used to be in the 50s when it first came out, you had to go through extensive psychological analysis before you were even approved to start any sort of a change. And that's, that's cut out completely. And now you don't even have to tell the parents that the child decided to become transgender. The parents don't get informed. So the, this is a, yes. a, a, which this is, is a which push. is an abomination. It, it's all an abomination. It's all an abomination. Here's a this will kind of bring this this point home. And here's a here's a theoretical for both of you. Um, let's say that you are a transgender male. You are a male who identifies as a female, and you are in your uh, 60s. Let's say you're in your 60s. Just use that for an example. Now, you identify as a female. The question is, when you go for uh, wellness exams, do you go to a urologist or do you go to an obstetrician? <laughs> I actually have someone I know that uh, he's done that, and he did it in his late 60s, in his, in his 70s, going into his 80s. I've never asked him that question, <laughs> but it would be interesting <laughs> what his or her answer at this point in time. That's, that's I mean, because very... we're we're always being we're always being told that we should believe in science about everything. Okay, so if we if we believe in science and we're doing that, then the science <laughs> unless the you science had a sex change. I'm sorry, CS. Yes. You can you change the change. You can change the equipment, but your 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 gender, your your birth sex remains the same with the rest of your life because you can't change the DNA. Right. Your well, I was very just responding. I was just responding what, to what doctor you would see, go to see, and I wonder about that. Uh, will a male who had a sex change go, you know, to a gynecologist after the sex change? I don't know. 
I mean, I really, I don't know either. I mean, maybe you could have a medical doctor on or uh, something, because I think that's a valid question to ask, because I would think that for, you can change cosmetically the outside, but I think the internal plumbing on the inside, inside is going to remain the same. Yeah, your your chromosomes your chromosomes are going to stay the same. Yeah, your basic ABCs just don't change. I mean, you're dead and buried, and I'm sorry, your implants are still there. Your bones are just dust now. But even when they do the DNA test on your bones, it's going to say born male, born female. You can't change right. it. Right. It's amazing. But, yeah, I, it's amazing. You you just tickled a little memory in the back of my brain here. I believe it was 10, maybe even 12 years ago, uh, there was a lawsuit by a transgender who wanted to be seen by a gynecologist. It was a male who transferred into a female, and the gynecologist refused to see the individual. Um, hmm. Whether or not the person had really changed, but it was a lawsuit where a gynecologist was sued because the gynecologist said, I'm sorry, this guy is still a guy. So oh, okay, what's not behind religion? Okay. Right. I mean, that's. I, I, I'm going to have to look that up because I'm curious. As, um, I would actually be surprised if that if that lawsuit actually got off the ground because, I mean, again, if you look at science, um, I don't know how a lawsuit like that would even how that person would even have standing. I mean, the gynecologist is the expert. You would think. <laughs> that is the expert. That's the gynecologist saying, "I can't, I, I can't treat this person because I'm not trained to treat this person. This person is biologically a male, not a female. I treat females. That's just how it is. So I'm curious if well, that that lawsuit even got off the ground. <laughs> I remember seeing it in an article, and the guy was still biologically male, but demanding to be seen by the gynecologist and be treated oh. by the gynecologist. And I, I, I do oh. remember it in a magazine it was. So it would be interesting to see how that lawsuit did progress. be very interesting if they even got... Yeah. Oh, God. That, where we, God help us all. <laughs> God help us. Oh, Heaven gosh. help us all. <laughs> but, you know, uh, we, we've got a silly, scene, uh, silly season out there with this election. Um, there was a call by an anti-Trumper, this guy that was with a former uh, anti-Trump think tank, um, Niles Gilman, who sent out a tweet on Monday demanding uh, that uh, uh, this one guy, uh, who's his name, Um, Altman, uh, holy cow, where's the guy? Oh, Michael Anton, I'm sorry, get the name right. Uh, Michael Anton be executed for his pro-Trump political views because he wrote a book, a new book that just came out called The Stakes, American at the Point of No Return. Can you imagine now if you as a conservative were to call the execution of someone simply because they wrote a book you disagree with, uh, we would be drummed off the planet Earth. Uh, but yeah. nothing happens to this. Nothing happens to this guy. I mean, shouldn't this be considered a death threat? I, you could, if, if you had someone or if he wanted to press charges or... Um, file a complaint, a criminal complaint as a, as a terroristic threat or death threat, yes, um, it would be worth pursuing. The problem is is that if you would have the um, district attorney or state attorney or prosecutor 
in that particular jurisdiction who will be willing to actually prosecute the case. Um, and as we're seeing, I, that, that's probably what the issue is. I would I would definitely consider that a terroristic threat or a death threat um, and pursue charges. But if you have prosecutors in jurisdictions who are not willing to do it, um, then you're kind of you're kind of out of gas with with having any type of remedy. You know, the prosecu- prosecutorial discretion is very powerful, but as we can see, we're starting to see now just how politically that who is whoever's in charge and has that prosecu- prosecutorial discretion, um, what a difference it can make. Um, I mean, you, we're seeing it. It happened in the, the the case in St. Louis with the uh, the attorney who his his wife and his wife's attorney also who they were in their private neighborhood and the the mob the Black Lives Matter mob broke through their private gate into the neighborhood and they were out brandishing weapons to protect their property and now they're being prosecuted but the people who broke into the private property they're not. So yes, it, it should be. There should be. There should be. Uh, there should not be a double standard. It should be equal justice under the law. But we're starting to see with these agendas that that's not the case. If you're on the right side of, uh, if you're with us, then you won't be prosecuted. If you're against us, and you don't think the same we do, then we're going to prosecute you if you do anything wrong. Yeah. Well, it's like it's like what I saw on television the other day. Um, it was like about 50 churchgoers out in their parking lot singing hymnals, and the cops were arresting them because they were not wearing masks. You know, it's it's really upside-down world. But my, my question to you now is these these politicians, they take an oath to uphold and protect the Constitution. And I don't see why when you got people like AOC and the rest who are trying to destroy the Constitution – why we can't go after them for um, violating, you know, their oath? Well, actually, there are there are mechanisms in place, but the there's a lot of political cowardice out there, and the minority. And I and, and when I say this, I mean the 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 people who are screaming the loudest, like the AOCs of the world. Make no mistake about it; they are the minority. They are the minority. Most people in this country, the vast majority of people in this country, don't think like that and don't want those type of things. But the problem is, is that the people in Congress who can censor her, who can uh, do things to basically bring her in line and say, look, you you took an oath to uphold the Constitution against all inresponsible domestic. Right. You don't have – you're not taking an oath to a person. Like when we took our military oaths, Yes, we don't take an oath to a person. We take an oath to the Constitution. That's right. Against all these foreign and domestic. To protect and, and defend. Politicians, they do the same thing, or they're supposed to. But what happens is that no one who has the power to do it um, will do anything. So we're stuck as um, the constituents and the citizens. The only thing we can do, because there are no term limits, and we see that our political leaders don't always want to do anything, then... No, they don't want to control. police themselves. Correct. They don't want to police themselves. Timothy, I want to thank you for uh, joining us. Where can people find you and follow 
you around? Well, you can, you can uh, follow me at www.davewealthstrategy.com. And also, I am uh, now teaching an online uh, constitutional law course. Um, it is geared it is geared towards uh, ages 14 to 18. However, um, anyone can sign up for it, particularly adults who may not have received college education. And I can be found on that platform is www.outschool.com. That's O U T S C H O O L. Outschool.com. And just look up my name, Timothy Dave, and uh, you'll see my constitutional law course. Well, thank you so much for God bless you for the hard work you do, Dave. Thank you so much. Thank you for thank you for having me, and uh, look forward to speaking again. Take care. Yeah, we'll get you back so you can tell us about that sex thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am going to check that out. Yes, I promise you, and I will let you know. I'll give you an update on that. Take care. All right. Okay. Bye bye. Right, check. Now, my computer screen just went a little wacko here. Um, now, I see some – we've got Daphne in. Okay, let's bring Daphne up on the screen Yeah, here. Daphne's oh. here. Daphne, Ren to see you. All right. <laughs> Daphne Barak, uh, welcome back to the show, Daphne. And, you know, I've been having a fun couple of weeks here, but I'm glad to see you are back at, at work. Uh, you're doing stuff that no one else in Hollywood is being able to do, and – with everything shut down, I don't know how you are succeeding. God bless you. So, so first of all, it's not only me, my dear. As your other half is coming back uh, to your, to you, and I'm hugging both of you from all my heart. Bill just came and joined me, so it's Bill Ganassi and I. And you, it's true. Uh, we we are very honored because Serenski, that is the president of CBS, and you're the close friend of ours, uh, and no, without any doubt, the most respected personality in the news industry today first ever woman president of cbs had dinner with us and she just uh flattered me she's a friend like you and i annie and she didn't have to give us a compliment but she was a beside herself that we did it under covid we gave any much needed job but what she told bill and i when i'll put you to say to talk to bill in, in a bit she said what i love about this two hour honey two hours and four minutes film and she said, what I love about this upcoming film, that it's like the secret society reveals. Because, you know, all people are very guarded uh, with PR and agents and everything. So on both sides of the aisle, the few Trump supporters and the black, uh, the black uh, rappers and the, the comedians, everybody, we, we, it's a first in- inclusive documentary with all, all sides, which we'll talk about it together. But she said... They don't like to be uh, seen vulnerable. They don't like, they're very ashamed to talk about how much they're being rejected, hurt, painful. And you have a black rapper saying, you don't know how many, how, how many policemen sat on my neck. And, and then they saw I'm not the guy that just let me go without an apology. And I'm too famous. I didn't want it to be ashamed. And on the other hand, Trump supporters saying like, I didn't want to go and, and cry poor that, they're not auditioning me because of Trump, because I'm hurting myself farther. So she said, she said to Bill, my beloved other half, uh, Daphne is the only one who made them talk. It doesn't happen. And, and I think that's what it's all about. Don't you think, Annie, let's talk. We, we come with, what is America? America is a melting pot. We, 
We, are not, we don't have 10,000 of years of history. We are all immigrants, second, third, fourth generation, first generation, right? We are uh, we're coming from different religions, different backgrounds, different colors, different opinions, but let's agree to disagree. Let's Absolutely. And there was a time in which you could sit down with a family member or a friend and be on the opposite end of the political spectrum, but you still broke bread. You still had a, a, a glass of wine or exactly. whatever with them. You were able to say, all right, we agree to disagree, but I happen to like your sports team. And we're both route or, you know, the Mets or whatever. You know, we always found a way in which to come together. And, you know, throughout the history of our nation, there have always been, you know, strife, no matter what. It's human nature. But what we can do as a nation that no other nation can do, we learn from our mistakes. We learn how to get together more often and find common ground. But somehow or other in this new political environment, the idea of multiculturalism and me, myself, and I first, and not we the people, is now the new norm. It's, you can say in political Exactly, power, not we the people. You're right. It's all about power. And not only, and not only yeah. that, you have some people who just do not like our country, and they want to change um, everything about it. They hate the founding fathers. They think it's a racist country. It, it, it built its wealth on the back of the poor and disenfranchised. So, you know, people like myself who love this country, we have to stand up and defend it. And I think that's that's why we at at where we are now polarized. It's because we have some people here that want to change things. And I so agree. So I want to tell you guys uh, how Bill and I started it. And by the way, the film, you'll see huge mega promotion. We're just doing a few early birds, like with close friends as yourself, honey. Uh, no, test the water, by the way. And, and it's called uh, Trump versus Hollywood. It's 25, 25, right? Uh, huge actors, musicians, uh, Hollywood key producer, director, just so couple of my actors, directors today, front page of the Daily Mail. Uh, so we're talking all the big names. But uh, it started when uh, Donald Trump, which I saw last weekend, I'll see him on Monday, and I and Bill spoke about Hollywood and, and the big grief because the funniest thing is that Donald Trump was part of Hollywood. I mean, we bumped into him in a Vanity Fair party, which is the party of the Oscars before this COVID scene, a QVC pre-Oscar party. Of course, he was apprentice. Uh, as you know, I had, uh, I've had i had a partnership with Liz Murdoch, the daughter of Rupert Murdoch, owner of Fox, and, and her other partner, Wahid Ali, started the apprentice. And he came there to talk to Trump. So he was part of Hollywood. He was liked. I'm not even going to the cameo of Home Alone. with, uh, uh, Or there was this funny pizza with a commercial with him and Ivana. And suddenly, boom, the moment he announced he was running for president, Hollywood went crazy. Remember, I mean, one of my friends, Jay Baldwin, one of the biggest Latino uh, singers, canceled his uh, appearance in the Miss Universe, which was owned by Trump. They canceled Miss Universe on Trump. Everybody canceled. And uh, basically, so what happened? How did it happen, right? So we started from the right. Uh, John Voight is like a, a father to Bill and I. When Bill's mother died recently, 
John left everything in D.C. when he was recording for the RNC convention in Colbert. It started with John and <coughs> with Trump, and we like Hosan as well. But suddenly, <coughs> I said, let's also involve Dean Cain, Kevin Sobo. And Bill said, let's do volume, volume, like Christy Swanson and Isaiah Washington and everything. And then we said we had to talk to the other side, you know, and it's like, You'll see Julia Roberts' uh, father, uh, brother, who is also the father of Emma Roberts, Mark Gergos, the number one Hollywood, uh, Brett Ratner, the number one director in Hollywood, Avi Lerner, and you'll see big surprises. And then, but big surprises because Avi Lerner used to support Hillary Clinton and Obama and gave them a lot of money with my friend Chaim Saban, who owns Univision. He said, no, now I'm, I'm, I'm voting for Trump because I cannot stand socialism. Uh, and, and, and you know, what could you say is a racist? Look how he's treating Israel, right? And uh, uh, basically, and then we, George Floyd happened. But before we asked about racism, and then we went to talk to eight of the biggest, uh, uh, you know, uh, black uh, rappers and comedians and everything. And there is a surprise coming, which I leave it to Bill to tell you, Annie, uh, and, your other, and your other best uh, hosts. But it was a, it became a huge volume. Uh, we, it was very, very uh, uh, challenging to, to, to film during COVID, you know, with masks. And you'll see me without makeup and everything as I'm laughing with everybody. The truth is out, right? Uh, <laughs> but it was too important to get the message. And the message it does show is Avi Lerner. The, Avi Lerner is the biggest producer in, in Hollywood, as you both know. He is a producer of Expendable with Stallone. Stallone is part of it as well. He's, he saved Lion Gate, which is teaming with me for the next project. And he said, I made $400 million for Expendable by pre-selling it to the Far East. Today, we are two Americas. They disrespect us. If you continue like that, I cannot sell any more our movies overseas. It's a big warning for all of us. Don't you agree, guys? Uh, we look horrible. Uh, we look horrible. We cannot even argue demo- in a democratic fashion, right? Well, you know, we've we've got two problems with the Far East, though, because China is influencing Hollywood and controlling what it's doing. So if it's not well, pro communist, yeah, if it's not pro communist party, it's not going to get made, or it won't get sold. And China is a huge, huge market. Now you may be able to sell to Are Thailand. You yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. So you know that's how that's how, we, Avi, that's how Avi Lerner that's how Avi Lerner saved language. Are you kidding me? Of course, and it doesn't exist anymore. You know, and we we have to we have to fight back. It, but also our image around the world. I'm getting phone calls from Australia. I'm the interview of sixty minutes Australia. I'm I'm syndicated worldwide. My friends in Europe, and guys, what are you doing? All these terrible images of riots and everything. It, it's completely – but I want Bill to be the hero to tell you the big, big uh, surprise of it. One of the biggest black rappers, and three, four, I manipulated them to uh, continue again. Trump versus Hollywood. The film is coming uh, uh, end of October. Big promotion starting mid of October. And uh, the only thing I, I want as you to, to, to talking about China – so when we met Susan Zorinsky, the president of CBS News, and close friend, you know, for dinner, 
So I go down with a mask. You'll love that, Annie. It's not that you will not love it, but it's a women's stuff. I go out with the mask. Everybody is admiring my Chanel and Gucci's mask. I said, how did you get it? I said, China. First of all, they got us the, the COVID, right? And then I, I'm getting my manicurist flying back from China and bringing me 50, you know, Chanel and Louis Vuitton and Gucci masks. So they already had made the money before the COVID was out. Everything is planned, right? <laughs> it's amazing, right? Now, here's Bill. Bill is going to tell you about the biggest surprise. Both of you would love it. And Trump would love it. We're seeing him on Monday. He would love it because it's coming from the most unexpected direction from the one of the biggest black rappers who is actually giving him hands up. Okay. Hey. How are you Very good. I'm doing... You heard the story. Hey. Daphne, so she says you've got a big story to break here. Yes, big story to break is, is the fact that we talk to people that uh, normally we would not be able to talk to, let's say, if we met in a gathering, right? We ended up in a gathering. They would not talk to us because we are on the right side of the aisle. And the fact that they talk to us, not only they talk to us, but they said certain things that you will never believe in your ears that they would say, that they will also talk to President Trump. And these are the people uh, willing to talk to him and willing to say certain things that will make President Trump happy, of all things. Can you imagine that? Yeah, I can actually. Because I think the average American or people that are supporting the average American are looking to see what's going on in the streets today. They're saying, this is not the America I want to see. We know what America should look like, and I think we need to get back to that conversation. In other words, just to summarize it with one word, there was a common sense uh, as the main theme among all these 25 actors, singers, and athletes, and everybody else that Daphne interviewed, there was a common sense in the sense that the half, that's liberal half, or the black lives matter half, that were sitting with us as well, uh, were able to admit, accept us as um, within the sense of common sense. You know, we were talking like we used to talk to each other, like in the old days, before 2016 or before whenever uh, we were divided. And then they said that, look, at, uh, if President Trump were to say, uh, admit one thing uh, about the, the previous comments that he made, and then we would even be willing to vote for him, uh, even though we never voted Republican and we are an adamant a Democrat, adamant anti-Trump, but we would vote for him. And uh, this is nothing to do with Obama, you know, uh, whatever he said against Obama, Berter and all that. It, it is about a simple fact that President Trump uh, made a big comment and knows about this comment. And then uh, if, you know, related to that. So it's, uh, you're hearing, uh, you're hearing for the first time that there is something that that will make them vote for Donald Trump if he only, you know, admits one thing, and it is not a big deal. Uh, 
from what we heard. Really? Now, when is the film going to be released? The film is going to be released in the next 10 days to to, two weeks' time, uh, right about two weeks before the elections. And uh, so the promotion should come in the next... uh, um, a few days or whenever, you know, we started talk like she said with a handful of friends like yourself, and uh, so to give the first hand information out. Let me give the Daphne back so that she can fill you in with some more details. Okay, great. Bill and Susan Zerinsky should live together. I mean, they said this has to be now. No, the film would be released on the uh, you know last part of October, but every promotion. Every promotion would start on October 10th or 11th or 12th. Uh, we, it's a huge excitement. And, and the, the big uh, CBS would lead, of course, the, as a conversation. They would also want us to, to put an extra half an hour from all the days and weeks of footage with the black, uh, only the black half of the people to, to you know. I and mean, we see them, you know, I have to tell you. And I don't see it anything to do with politics. It definitely doesn't have to do with Trump. It started God. Uh, racism is there. Like, and the way to, to fight racism is like the pandemics. We have to see, to go into the root of it and heal it. And racism is not only black and, uh, and white. There's Hispanic. There's Jewish. There's like, you know, let, let's look at it like we're all children of God. But I want to also entertain you're a bit in some uh, episodes. So you would love, you both of you would love the beginning of the film. So it's starting with one of the biggest directors, Brett Ratner, right, who is occupying the headlines today. The director of Rush, you know Rush, right? Jackie Chan and, uh, and uh, Chris Tucker, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars a film, right? He is about mm-hmm. to direct the fourth one when the COVID is over. And by the way, funny enough, I was the executive producer of a Discovery for Jackie Chan showing Hong Kong. So we are, you know, it's a small, a small, a very close friend of us. And he, he, by the way, everybody opened their houses for the first time when we came out during COVID. And, and, and I, I'm so honored because they gave such a, they trusted us. And, and we, you know, we kept the crew less than eight people and as I said, did not do makeup and did everything. But Brett was sweating because he opened his house, he's next to the hotel. He was sweating because he like the idea to open his house to, you know, uh, to a crew, not only to Bill and I. And he's like screaming at his assistant and everything. And apparently my crew filmed it. So my editor, who is a very, very known film director. And, you know, nobody has a work right now, so I'm so humble and fortunate to have everybody working for us. People who are directors as myself are working for me and Bill right now. Very famous people. He caught it, and it's starting so... You're going to scream, both of you, when you see it. It's Brett Ratner screaming at the assistant. You're, you're disturbing me. Do you see how nervous I am? And then he's looking at the camera. Suddenly so sweet. It's like, Hi. My name is Brett Retter, and I'm the director of Rush and everything. And the whole film come back to him at the end. And, and it looks like he's a director, and I'm not, and I'm living that way. But, but, but there is a big question that Brett is answering, and Avi is answering, and, and, and Mark Gergos is the biggest lawyer. And I'm not talking about the biggest actors, whether you have Butchelli, and you have Kid Rock, and you have all the big names, right? But 
the two two words which really bothered me uh, and Bill, and I'm sure you too as well, quote-unquote blacklisting. We didn't have it since McCarthy in Hollywood, right? You remember? People killed themselves, you remember? And, yes. um, and when my friend, uh, uh, Anne, uh, hosted Donald uh, Trump at home in Beverly Hills next to us, I think it was a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, for a fundraiser, Deborah Messing, text message, oh, we have to look at everybody's going in and blacklist them. And Eric McCormick did the same. And, and by the way, even Whoopi Goldberg, who's our friend, Robert De Niro from the left side, said, what are you doing? I mean, people kill themselves. You cannot blacklist people. So that's what really uh, bothered me. I mean, you have amazing beautiful people that uh, like Scott Bio in the film and then Dean Kane, you know, Superman and uh, Kevin Sobo, Hercules and Christy Swanson. And said, hey, we cannot prove that we have been blacklisted. We cannot prove that I was not casted for this audition because of my political. Can we prove that? But we have emails. We have, you know, Kevin Sobo said his, his agency dropped him when he supported Trump, right? Uh, so it's very so we have the other side I mean Brett Ratner said no I don't remember it but Avi Lerner is very one of the biggest producers in Hollywood the only cashier say hey look we know everybody in Hollywood is Democrat and we know where everybody stands but I as a filmmaker like I'm voting for Trump right now and I voted for Hillary last time I want everybody to watch my film, Hispanics and Greeks and Turks and Israelis and, and Arabs and everybody, of course. But he did it. He does admit that he was pressured by one time to to give up to such pressure, you know. So he's very, he's extremely eloquent and extremely straightforward. And it just shows a reality of, of uh, being a, a Trump supporter in Hollywood. Should I say? Should I not? I could not convince four or five of them, which are Oscar winners, close friends of us, uh, having lunch and dinner with us, to talk. He said, what are you doing? I mean, you want to kill me father? You know? But on the other end, it was also very important to le- listen to the black uh, big stars and what they're going through. And, and beside uh, maybe... And the, the, what I find the biggest achievement, that even... Uh, extremists from both sides. I mean, I, I made them agree to talk to the other side. Ted Nugent. I mean, what an experience, guys. We were in his 300 acres range, and he and his wife are shooting animals with arrows. I was so I was so scared to move, you know. And, I, like, he hates everybody on the other side. Very, very intellectual guy. He's a conservative with all the right reasons. He has the, the full... The full uh, knowledge why he's a conservative. Amazing guy. But when I said, well, you said, I said, would you talk to Robert De Niro? He said, I know he's your friend. Uh, I know uh, he's much more talented than I am. He's one of the biggest actors. But then I bring him to say, hey, you don't have to agree. I don't agree with Robert De Niro, right? But uh, can we just talk? We are all Americans, right? I'm more close to you than to Robert De Niro politically, right? But uh, can we just talk? And and he says yes. It was a big achievement. And on the other hand, as, as Bill just told you, one of the biggest rappers said, yes, I will sit with Trump. I will talk to him. I will tell my voters if I find him 
the way you say, Daphne, to vote for him. We're talking millions of voters. And I made four other rappers to agree with him. One didn't want to, you know, that's why the, the, the film is a documentary. We cannot change reality. But most of them did for one of the biggest uh, uh, of them said, I cannot even use this word on radio or television, but I said, I actually, between you and I, but of course on camera, between you and I admire Trump because he has big, big B, you know what, right? Oh, nice. I admire the guy. <laughs> exactly. We cannot go there, right? But, I mean, it was a very uh, a, a amazing experience. And we cannot end before a funny story. So Avi Lerner, you remember the big things, guys, that Robert De Niro punched Arnold Schwarzenegger because because of Trump? Went crazy, right? Uh-huh. It was videoed all over the place. Robert De Niro said, F and F and F Trump, and he's punching Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? So actually, it was in an Israeli event, a big fundraiser with my friend Sheldon Adelson, who is a big Trump supporter. We, Bill and I brought him to Trump. And Chaim Saban was a big Hillary supporter. And Robert De Niro is there, and Schwarzenegger is there. You know, it's California, it's Hollywood. And Avi Lerner is in the middle, and suddenly Robert De Niro is losing it over Trump, and go and Schwarzenegger, and by mistake, punches Avi, right? Because he's so upset. <laughs> And Avi is the one who actually produced the the movies with him and Al Pacino and everything, right? And and mm-hmm. Avi looks at me and he said, like, the film is so funny. Avi looks at me and said, why is he doing it? Why can't he just talk? Why does he have to punch it? Why does he punch me? And then he said, I looked at him and I said, Robert, between you and I, Schwarzenegger doesn't even like Trump. So what are you doing? <laughs> it's like, it's just, you're making a fool of yourself, right? I mean, it's just like completely, but the hatred, which really got me, it used to be guys, they said that a man and a wife, and you're getting your husband back, right? A man and a wife could not uh, discuss religion. They would get a divorce. Now we cannot discuss Trump. No, Daphne, we're down to our last four minutes. Uh, quickly, can you tell people, is there a website up yet for your film, uh, Trump vs. Hollywood? No, we are just doing early bears. There will be huge promotion, as, of, as I said, as of oh, October 10th. It's called Trump vs. Hollywood. It will be CBS premiered huge time and others, and then, of course, all over the board, uh, uh, and Netflix, Amazon, uh, you know, all the things. We cannot do a theater release anymore due to COVID. Uh, it's a huge promotion. And um, it does show, um, I am, by the way, Bill and I are very proud to be Trump delegates. I am a longtime friend of Trump, but I really want to talk to the other side. I used to be a liberal, and I think we're all Americans, and, uh, and uh, we have to talk. So it's Trump versus Hollywood. I would like to come back, uh, Annie, and, and bring you a couple of my big stars with me. That's what we will do after the tenth. We'll bring a couple of my big stars, so you can have you can have the glamour all for yourself. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Daphne. We'll be talking <laughs> with each other as usual. We'll be texting each other back and forth. God bless you, and Bill. Thank you. Uh, I'm surprised she even allowed you to talk, Bill. <laughs> Bill Bill doesn't hear you because we are actually just came back to DC from New York, but Bill admires you and we are singing your praises and your show is amazing. Oh, thank you so much. You're both a a great duo. 
And please give the man a big hug to me when he's coming home. Oh, he is home. He came home yesterday afternoon. He's home. Okay, so give him two hugs today. One for me, one for Bill. Thank you so much, Jackie. God bless. All right, my guys. All right. All right. God bless everybody. <laughs> All right, Thanks. Daphne Barak, her, her, her partner, uh, Bill Gadesky, uh Check her out. Her website is her name, DaphneBarak.com. That's all we got for the show, Curtis. We're down to our last minute and a half. And holy cow, what a show it has been today. Yeah, it went kind of fast, too. Wow. And actually, we're booked up through October 9th. Uh, I think maybe one or two slots are left open between now and October 9th, and we're starting to book beyond that. Um, our show is becoming very popular with people out there that want their their voices heard and want their stories out there, and I'm glad. I'm blessed to have that happen here on yeah. our show. It's 10 years, and we finally hit that spot. So, uh, uh, and I have, some, I, I have some names to give you. Uh, I'll just call you a little later and let you know, you know yeah, who I, I want to uh, fill some of those slots yeah. with some new people. All right. Uh, well, I've got the schedule up on our episode so people can check on our show page um, here on Blog Talk Radio to see what I have scheduled for the future. If they want to see who I already have locked in. Um, but Curtis, you know, double check with what? Because I'm still getting answers as of today uh, on some of these empty slots we got between now and the ninth. So I want to thank everyone for joining us and we're down to our last few seconds. What a show. Oh, yeah. Everybody have a good right. weekend. Safe. All right. Safe. Then I say good night and God bless. And I don't even have enough time left to play in closing. So I will see everyone here same that time, same that station next week. Take care. Good night and God bless.